Welcome to episode 17 of the Daniel Yoris podcast with today's guest, Anthony Barsby. Let's go. Today's guest is my friend, Anthony Barsby. He is an exercise physiologist working out of the Deerfields Clinic here in Toronto, and they're doing a lot of really great work in terms of private medical spaces that are coming up uh, more frequently, I guess, in Canada and in Toronto anyways. Anthony and I went to school together at York University in kinesiology. We spent quite a bit of time together in fourth year under the wing of Dr. Veronica Jamnik, or Ronnie as she likes to be called, and that was a really great time. We both learned a hell of a lot and referred to or reminisced on some time from Ronnie's class here in the episode. It was a very wide-ranging conversation, a good catch-up. Anthony helped me at a time when I was uh, lost, for lack of a better word, in life, one of many people who helped guide me to where I am today, and so I'm grateful for him for that and for all that we spoke about today and all that will come of it. We spoke a lot about the biggest barrier to improving your health and how to begin to overcome some of these obstacles, all the things that are happening at the Deerfields Clinic, mindfulness and the role in our physical health, the the critical health, did I say health with an F like a four-year-old? Critical mindfulness and its role in our physical health and the critical role that sleep plays that is under underestimated for many of us. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff. Obviously, this was quite an extensive episode where we got into the weeds on some things, but stayed kind of general, always brought things back to make it applicable and understandable for everyone. So I hope you enjoyed it. It's the longest episode to date, which I'm happy about. It was a fantastic conversation. Great to connect with my buddy again. And there'll be many more coming from where this one came from. And that's that. So here it is, my conversation with Anthony Barsby. Anthony Barsby, welcome to the podcast, my man. It's great to see you again. Great to see you too. How you been? Uh, I've been okay, you know, in a boat similar to many others during this time, but uh, I try not to complain too much. I'm, I'm pretty fortunate to, you know, still be working during this time, uh, but certainly has its challenges for everybody. Yeah, that's for sure. Have you been, have you been able to stay relatively positive throughout this whole time? I'd say yes, absolutely. Like uh, trying to always look at day to day because, you know, you go too much into the future. You're typically worried or anxious. So the only kind of autonomy and control you have is day to day. So I try to keep it that way and always looking at it from half full. Yeah, I love Uh, that. Worked pretty well thus far. Yeah. Some days it certainly is uh, challenging. For sure. I think that's honestly, because that's something that I kind of speak about, I guess, relatively often, even just on Instagram, or whatever is like, you know, control what you can, like, don't worry about, yeah, there's, there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening in the world and whatever, and you can't control that. So just do what you can. And that's that. But, you know, at the same time, as much as I truly believe that and live my life that way, there's some days where I'm just like, oh, I got rocked today. Like, this is just not a good one. <laughs> and just kind of suck it up and, and go to sleep, pick it back up the next day and, and move on. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Why don't we just get started real quick? Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Tell people who you are, what you do, and, and all that. Uh, so my name is Anthony Barsby. As you mentioned, I am a certified exercise physiologist. I'm also a registered kinesiologist, and I currently work at Deerfield's Clinic. I am the director of human performance there. So in a very small snapshot, I oversee... Uh, the human performance lab at that clinic. And I'm now in a bit more of a leadership role in the last couple months where I'm helping to grow future coaches um, and come up with new protocols, new services, things like that. 
That's fantastic. And Deerfields is in Toronto or it's, it's Etobicoke? It is in Etobicoke now. Um, we were in downtown Toronto at Davenport back in 2017, but logistically it was a nightmare um, just for parking and things like that. So it was a smart decision for us to move out west uh, to the Etobicoke area. And we actually did a little analysis and found that most of our patients were kind of West End oriented. So then it, it made the most sense. And we drastically increased our square footage with that move. So now we're located at 111 the West Mall in Etobicoke. Um, and we've been there since uh, the beginning of 2018. Nice. And and how long has that clinic been open for? Because I remember we spoke about this. It, it must have been 20, 2018 or, or so. Or 17. Something uh, like that, yeah. We went to the pickle barrel that one time. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, and we caught up then. So uh, that would have been 2017 or 2018, correct? Um, I took over from actually a former student of Ronnie, and um, he was there for about five years. And I've been there now for about four and a half so you could say the company's probably been around for about 10 years. So I would say, you know, 2011, 2012 was when it was first uh, established. Right. Yeah. And these kind of private medical centers have been popping up more and more. And I think maybe we'll get into it in a bit, but I think that they're going to play a much, much larger role in the way that like kind of healthcare works in, in Canada anyways, going forward, given all the current circumstances. But just to quickly just give a little bit of context to anybody listening, Anthony and I went to school together. We both went to York University. And then in our fourth year, we were part of a separate certificate program under Dr. Veronica Jamnik. Ronnie, as she likes to be called, she's not on her high horse about being called doctor, although she is a brilliant, brilliant woman. Um, and, and that's how we kind of get got to know each other. And then the catch up that uh, Anthony was talking about was after I had dropped out of school, I was for lack of a better word, lost in my ways. Among many people, you were one of them that I reached out to just to chat and see like, hey, what are the, what's going on in the world? What are the options? What are the things to get me back on track? And so uh, thank you for that, for, for that conversation. It would definitely help kind of steer me into where I am now. So I, I really appreciate you for that. Anytime. And definitely shout out to Ronnie. Uh, definitely a miracle worker. Definitely an OG in the fitness game. Uh, taught me absolutely everything I know. And you know, whenever I'm personally feeling lost, whether it be professionally or um, personally, I always find myself going back to her and trying to figure some stuff out. Yeah. And you're still in contact with her. Yeah. Yeah, actually. Um, certainly the pandemics put it uh, more on behind. Uh, but just as you were saying, you know, we, we met really in that performance lab at York University under Dr. Jaminick. And, um, you know, every year, students would new batch of students and they would learn the testing procedures that we learned right so she would continue to invite me back for that and it was more of like a senior exercise physiologist so it was similar to Robbie uh, if you remember mm -hmm. uh, of course Ryan and uh, everybody Lauren so it kind of started to go there where I was helping more facilitate the next kind of generation for her uh, but then of course pandemic has drastically uh, reduce like the amount of people that she can do. And I actually consulted with her a lot in regards to testing procedures. Um, so for your viewers, I, we do at the Deerfields Clinic um, extensive fitness testing as part of uh, comprehensive medicals. So I work, you know, in tandem with a physician and other clinical members and my role in all our 
coaches and exercise physiologists just deal with uh, the fitness uh, performance testing. And uh, I consulted with her on, you know, PPE protocols and uh, screening protocols, tech that was available at the time. And she's been testing throughout everything. And uh, it's been very fortunate to kind of keep in touch with her on that. And it just gives me a little peace of mind to know that, hey, we can still do this. People talk about the new norm. Uh, I don't see some PPE protocols changing in uh, high respiratory uh, interactions. So, you know, if you're doing a VO2 max test or you're doing a pulmonary uh, lung test, I don't see PPE protocols lightening up in the future. So it's kind of just learning what the new norm best practices should be and then try to keep those as uh, stable and consistent as possible. Yeah, and I think that's probably a better word to use as best practices because some of the stuff that we did, like in, in the human performance lab there, you know, people are breathing heavy, kind of spitting all over the place sometimes. And, and, you know, we'd get, we get spit spl- spat on or splat on us, whatever. And like, you know, whatever, you just brush it off. And, but like, you need to think back at it. It's like, that's not, it's not really okay. Like who, who knows? None of us got sick or anything to my knowledge, but what would it have take uh, or what would it have took for one of us to catch something from someone there? You know, these people are coming in to test for or to become a firefighter or to become a prison guard or, or the myriad of other things that we were testing for. And if that was their test day, even if they just had a regular cold and they came in, oh, they got to get the test done because if it's not now, it's going to be like four months from now. And that's like a whole ordeal for them. So yeah, I mean, even as something as simple as just wearing the mask when you go to the grocery store, like if you have a cold, a regular cold, you know, it's not life threatening to to 99.999% of the population, whatever. But if you have a regular cold, is it really that big a deal to just put a mask on when you go to the grocery store just out of courtesy to others? I don't think it is. Now, do we all need to wear masks all the time and all this stuff? Like, no, but general best practices, I think it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I would agree with that. And you might even hear anecdotally from, you know, colleagues, friends, family of yours that um, uh, decrease in illness incident, especially over the whole winter term. Um, And is that fully attributable to masks? Um, Perhaps, maybe not all, but I would say a a good majority that in combination with the physical distancing, of course, but definitely see uh, masks being more of a norm in large uh, gathering uh, areas. So whether that be the grocery stores or whether that be uh, events, you know, the, the downtown Christmas market every year, you know, those things, uh, both venues get packed. And I definitely see people uh, keeping the mask just because it's giving them peace of mind as well. And like you said, if they're actually feeling ill and doing that common courtesy to other people that they're around. Yeah. And I think another thing just to highlight from that, even what you said about, about Ronnie there is like, you know, just because things change and just because there are different circumstances, we can always kind of find a way to make things work. Like things need to get done. We can't just all sit at home and twiddle our thumbs forever. You know, we need to get things done. So we need to be able to do things safely given the circumstances, whatever those circumstances may be, whether it be COVID or, or whether it be some new thing that's, you know, completely different, you know, maybe we all have to, I don't know. We all have to wear a dress and somehow that, that <laughs> protects against the next virus just to be like silly and extreme. But if that's what it takes and to get stuff done, then that's what it takes, right? That's actually funny that you use that term as well because, um, like our PPE protocols are pretty extensive for, um, the interaction. So we kind of, uh, tier 
the interaction about how much risk is involved. So for example, if I'm meeting with somebody for uh, fitness correction or fitness introduction, you know, I've done an assessment, I have some data on them, and then I've had recommendations and I really want to uh, do that in a kinetic context. So like see them in person move, you know, relatively it's a lower risk because it's not um, stimulating cardiovascular wise, you know, you're not huffing and puffing, you know, you're talking general range of motion kind of at this point. But then that's would say like lower tier where bare minimum, you have a mask on KN95, N95 gloves. Um, if you wish uh, goggles, that's because again, your eyes can absorb things. So that's lower tier. But when we go to full VO2 max and pulmonary function testing, I always say, you know, I got to put my dress on, which is a full gown. It's bright yellow. <laughs> um, and then I have this uh, head um, piece uh, like net and it's fluorescent blue. Uh, my gloves are like purple uh, N95. I have a full face shield. So it's quite a, quite a interesting uh, aesthetic <laughs> and style when you're full PPE'd up, but it makes for good conversation. And, you know, like you said, kind of like keeping it light um, during this time, uh, it, I found it to be kind of helpful to have some like comic relief uh, when I'm interacting with people in those high risk kind of test situations. So yeah. it's been, it's been nice. And it makes everyone feel comfortable. Like you're in a more medical setting where for, for me, I'm not really, I'm not treating people per se. Um, you know, people are healthy. They, they may have health issues, but I'm, they're not coming to me for that. Um, so in your situation, you know, people are, people can be nervous. People can be scared or apprehensive to come and exercise in front of someone or be tested because they know that they're being evaluated. So if layered on top of that is this like, oh, I'm, I'm worried about safety protocols, COVID or not COVID then, you know, you might as well just do the thing that makes everybody feel more comfortable. Because if, if that person's not going to feel comfortable with you, whatever recommendations you're going to give them or whatever kind of coaching you're going to give them at the end of it, they're much less likely to actually stick to that and actually follow through on that if they don't just trust you as, as a person first. That's actually a very, very good point. And that definitely highlights, you know, the, the personal connection that you have with a patient. And it's all about creating like the most, the best experience that you can create for the individual. So, you know, if I have the time, I actually like personally, I do, you know, somewhat of a, a background check sometimes on patients, get to try to know them, whether it be reviewing their chart ahead of time, you know, see what the occupation is and things like that, because it just, I'm spending about two hours of time with there. And, and if you are just kind of that silent, individual who just wants to carry through the testing and not really interact with them. And you just kind of say, yeah, sit down. Yeah. Take this off. Yeah. Do this. Not, and again, not the most pleasant experience. And when you talk about these private clinics, right. And then more of the popping up definitely need to have a customer service experience or uh, a thought about customer experience, because these people could really go to OHIP services if they wanted to. So, What's bringing them to you and what's keeping them there? I would definitely say, you know, customer experience is one of them. But at the same time, you know, we, we have some pretty fantastic team members and we can offer a lot of in-house testing that has much less wait times than, you know, the OHIP system. But of course, you know, pros and cons. Yeah, you get quick times, but it costs for service or fee for service. So, um, yeah, it's 
definitely need to have a good experience. And even just on Thursday, uh, long uh, story here, but on Thursday, I had a, a, an exam. I don't do as much anymore with some of the new duties and responsibilities I have, uh, but I don't want to lose my hard skills. You know, I don't want to lose my ability to do VO2 max testing or anything like that. So I say, hey, give me some tests every now and then. And this individual is walking out my previous patient who I have a really good relationship with. And I walked him out to his vehicle, get some fresh air. Um, and I've already prepped for my day way in advance. And I'm a car guy. So we won't have to go too deep because you'll take me on a few tangents with that. But this, uh, I see a very beautiful McLaren uh, 570 outside and uh, it's fully wrapped and everything like that. I'm like, oh, this is very cool. Very cool. And I see the license plate and sure enough, it had the initials of the patient that I was going to see for their testing. So I'm already kind of grinning, you know, ear to ear under my face mask and um, start you know, talking to this person and just saying, Hey, you know, what, what do you do for a living? If you don't mind me asking, um, then kind of segued into his car. He told me about how uh, he ended up purchasing it. It was his first high end exotic car that he's ever had bought it in January. So you see what I mean? You just, you, you find your methods and then you start developing rapport and relationship. And if that person, you know, at part of the Deerfields clinic, we basically do exams and we do programs. So, People talk about the funnel to getting new clients. Ours is the exam process. So that's how you start with us. So this person, by the end of the exam process, they have a choice to go into programs, which you could say in summary that we manage their health for them, whether that be in prescriptions to referrals to additional testing to coaching support from myself. Um, they have the choice of doing that. It's not mandatory. So if you kind of don't set that tone or set an expectation of how you could help them, but also have that trust in that relationship. They might not transition and want to be part of the practice and get care. So um, it's, it's an interesting uh, style of interaction, but I find if you approach it with genuine like curiosity um, and trying to help people, you're set. Yeah. It's, it's very easy and it's very uh, effortless. I, I totally agree. And I think that this kind of like pay for service model in tandem with like the universal healthcare, what we've got here is, you know, I don't know all the details of the economics of all of it. So we can leave that aside. But uh, I think it's a great idea because, you know, something that is missing in the medical system that we have here is, is that customer service aspect. Doctors and, and, and not to like shit on them and all that stuff, but they know that you're coming there because like that's your only option. And so they don't necessarily have to be nice. Many doctors are kind and nice and great people, but they don't really have to be because like you're not paying. So your expectation is low. But the second you walk into uh, a clinic like yours or, or a gym or even like physiotherapy or a chiropractic or an osteo appointment where it's not OHIP covered, you need to take out your credit card and pay for that. Now there's like an expectation of, well, well I better be getting some good quality service for my money. And if, I, and if you're not giving it to me, I'm going to go somewhere else. One thing that I always think, and it's, it's maybe more elevated in the medical community is like, everyone is good at what they do. Most pretty well, all doctors are good. All therapists are good. Everyone's good. But what is going to make that person come back to you? And especially true in personal training and coaching is like, none of us are geniuses compared to the rest of us. We all kind of know more or less the same things. Some of us are better at delivering it than others, of course. But what's going to make that person come back is whether they like you or not. 
that's what that's what's going to help them stay with you for the long time and that's what's again going to help them buy in and like you said it doesn't really take a whole lot to get people just to feel comfortable you notice that thing about the car you might notice something about uh, you know something about they said about their child or their parent or their dog or you know whatever and and you just make that quick connection and i think another thing and you tell me if you've experienced this is people are like kind of starved for human interaction now people are more likely to just sit and talk and kind of just shoot the shit because we're all at home doing nothing whereas maybe pre covid people just want to you know get in get out do their business and and kind of move on to the next thing but now we're starved for that interaction so have you noticed that at all in the clinic that people are just a little bit more chatty in general absolutely now with that being said of course we try to minimize that in a like social perspective like don't don't be just sitting in the lounge and talking because you know you have to limit the amount of people like right. in the clinic at any given time but i have certainly noticed it and also people who i would say are relatively far geographically they have no more issues about taking that commute to get in because for them that might be the only interaction that they've had in person for the week or the month so i've noticed that where geographical barriers people aren't as concerned anymore because they've now put that social interaction at a higher priority than the gas than the traffic headache all, all this stuff which is certainly nice and engaging you just have to certainly balance it when you talk about you know keeping uh limits of how many people are in a facility at one point in time but absolutely have noticed that people are yearning for social interaction more than ever and our medical director at Deerfield's clinic uh, Dr. Randy Knapp uh Knipping absolutely fantastic uh physician well experienced and um he has always described that we we are social creatures of habit you know if you're a, a creationist maybe you're not going to subscribe to it but if you know you subscribe to uh evolution you know millions of years of development and development and revision and you can definitely argue that one of those tipping points was uh social interaction and cooperation um it increased survival odds it increased reproduction odds so to say that we're not social creatures inherently i would say not necessarily accurate maybe some people you know there's quite a lot of i would say uh conditions that can affect mental state or predisposition but i would say for the vast majority we are definitely social creatures um inherently so and you never appreciate something truly until it's taken away from you so we've had that for the last year year and a half absolutely it's kind of building building and now people are really itching to get that social interaction yeah and i think i think a key part of that is at the beginning of this you know, we were all kind of gung ho on, okay, let's do Zoom calls. We'll do Zoom group chats, Zoom, uh, you know, after work drinks and, you know, all these kind of like virtual connections. And then that got old very quickly. I don't know about your experience, but like I was training clients kind of over Zoom one on one. And it's like, this just kind of sucks after, after a few times. It's, it wasn't very good. And so as much as that's being social, we, there is something intangible. I don't know what it is. I'm sure someone who's like, you know, a super expert in this kind of stuff would be able to describe it. But like, there's something about being face to face with someone being able to, you know, hear your actual voice, not through headphones, but your actual voice, you know, the the, the touch, you know, to, to be able to shake hands with somebody to be able to give somebody a hug, all that kind of stuff, like it really, really matters. And it's, 
it's just been highlighted because it's been taken away from us for really the first time ever now. Yeah. And it, like you said, on the zoom, I found the same thing, whether it be like, you know, trying to do uh, a, a mobile uh, virtual assessment, which is something at the very beginning last year, I started exploring, Hey, you know, if we never see somebody in person, how could I do a movement screen? How could I do an assessment as a whole virtually? So it was definitely something where you notice a lot of zoom meetings in the very beginning it had its pros and certainly had its cons. And um, it was exhausting, whether it be connection issues or just, you know, you're trying to demonstrate that exercise. And for the life of you, you can't get the angle right on the camera. Yeah, yeah. And they're, they're not getting the cue right. You see it, you see what's wrong, but you're not able to give them the cues that they can correct it themselves. So at the very beginning of this conversation, I've always said, you know, like half full, you know, it's an opportunity for you to explore like, okay, now maybe I need to try to improve my language or, you know, my cues and stuff for these situations, because they're going to come up again uh, yeah. in the future. Uh, hopefully not in the majority, but I, I'd imagine, you know, uh, this whole virtual uh, reality that we're experiencing now, you know, you can have patients that are across the globe, across the country. So I definitely think they're still going to pop up. Um, always an opportunity for learning but I definitely got burnt out by them pretty quick. Um, one other pro that I found is when I'm working with somebody in a coaching standpoint, uh, I like to do progress reviews about every 90 days. Uh, this also includes blood work. So when I'm interacting with somebody on zoom like this, of course, you're, you're well aware that you can do share screen functions and stuff like that. So I found it helpful to share my screen and go over uh, patients, blood work results. Um, and it's just an easier method in which you can communicate information. And if you just spit out a bunch of numbers, it's very difficult for patients to track and, and to comprehend. But if you have a visual representation of everything, it has a much more meaningful uh, conversation, especially on these blood work results. Yeah, it definitely did challenge uh, coaching ability or teaching ability overall, because for me, I know personally, like I used touch and, and that tactile feedback as one of like my main coaching cues, obviously with consent and blah, blah. But I mean, it, it's a, it's a big one for me. And so to not be able to have that and it's all verbal. And then, like you said, it's even something as simple as, as, uh, the angles like, okay, well, this person's using their iPhone and it's, you know, it, it keeps falling and it's like, it, it's just pointing at the ceiling. I can't see what they're doing. I can't possibly like correct you. And it's, it just presents some challenges, but it, it gives you the, the reason or the necessity to like, okay, I got to improve this. I, I don't have these, you know, these tools available to me. So I need to sharpen up the tools that I do have. And I think for those of us who have made it through and, and who have stuck out and put the time in to like improve these tools that we do have, that it will benefit us when we do have the rest of our arsenal back, uh, back together. Absolutely. Come out like, you know, I, I'm a, used to be a huge fan. The whole reason I got into health and fitness was, you know, old cartoon shows, uh, specifically like Dragon Ball Z and stuff like that. You know, that was how you got your fundamentals of like, you know, train, trade hard, eat, sleep, you know, try to be a good person. And, you know, there was some series where they would go in and, you know, you just try to develop, you just try to develop and then you come out a whole new person and then you try to apply that in real life. And I don't see it as any other different method. You know, it's, it's been a great time for, um, reflection and trying to develop oneself uh, through this time. 
either because, you know, people aren't working or there's just less demands on us because you're not able to do anything, you know, perceived demands. Um, so definitely an opportunity to just develop across the board. Uh, I'd certainly try to do it with um, coaches on my team, even myself. So last year I actually did the ARKIN exam, registered kinesiologist exam, uh, studied for about three months over the summer last year, and then ultimately wrote it in September, which was an interesting experience because things were still pretty uh, locked down kind of around that time, but it was an in-person exam. So mm. that was an interesting dynamic, you know, no talking, you had to do three hour exam with your mask on. Um, so that had some challenges, but, you know, just highlighting the idea of, you know, professional development, if it was an opportunity for you during this time. Yeah, for sure. Well, on, on that note, kind of the way that things have changed in, in with patients, what are some of the changes, if any, in patients and things that are cases or types of types of patients that you've been seeing throughout COVID? Are there certain conditions that are coming up more frequently in the past year or anything like that? Yes. Um, conditions, I would probably have to say metabolic syndrome, I would say, because that's just like a very multifaceted where, so then that kind of just encompasses, you know, the blood pressures, the triglycerides, uh, the body composition, glucose, because you have a situation where food availability hasn't decreased at all. You know, we still have tremendous abundance and access to food, but we have limited physical activity output. And of course that has a consequence to it. And we find ourselves in quite a caloric surplus. So of course I've seen people, you know, they joke about the quarantine 15, you know, or just weight management is a difficult process. But beyond that, I've noticed a lot more, I guess not from a formal diagnostic perspective, but definitely more instances of depression, irritability, anxiety, um, maladaptive coping mechanisms, you know, definitely increases on alcohol consumption. But I've found that most people have been through it enough now where they even had to check themselves and say, you know, hey, this is kind of getting out of hand for a year. You know, I've had some patients who the reality is a bottle a night. Yep. bottle a night and doing that seven days and on repeat of course this exacerbates a whole lot of underlying things going on and then i would say uh so there's definitely mental things that i've noticed and then physically i would say uh, a little bit of like atrophy people are not able to engage the muscles to the same extent um and more immobility or restrictions are popping up so like, you know, sciatica, I would say people sitting for long periods of time, low back pain from also sitting a lot of the time, you know, shoulder, especially dominant right uh, or left, whatever dominant arm you're on because of, you know, mousing on the computer, typing on the computer, that dominant arm tends to be anterior rotated um, more so just because we use it more. So I noticed a lot more shoulder pains, things like that. And that can actually translate up into the neck, into the trap causing headache type symptoms, neck pains. So definitely seen my fair share. And I would say it's mostly in mental kind of states. And that's very transient. Some people it's affected them chronically and then some physical. But I would say that's just because people aren't able to challenge themselves the way that they used to. Um, and then when you don't move, you seize up. So it's kind of, that's the recipe that I'm seeing mostly. Yeah, I think it kind of 
it all kind of comes full circle. It's like, okay, well, we can't move, and so we can't go outside, and so there becomes psychological, uh, what's the right word? Issues, I guess. That's probably not the right word, whatever. And then, you know, that will then cause less movement, more poor eating habits, more poor uh, drug and alcohol consumption, and then it just kind of like it keeps feeding into each other. And and I think I- I'm genuinely scared for like the country and like the population in that none of these things or most of these things are not like immediate concerns. It's not like, you know, you had a little shoulder pain, you gain 15, 20, 30 pounds, and then you got to go to the hospital because you're going to die tomorrow. Like that's not really how these things work. But it all kind of starts slowly. And there's so many people who are starting this like very slow and gradual snowball effect who maybe they're realizing, hey, this has reached a point where I've got to do something about this. And that's fantastic. A lot of people won't reach that point or they will reach that point and not have the knowledge or the resources or the wherewithal otherwise to do something about it. And then what does that look like 15, 20 years down the road from now? Like, are we going to be overwhelmed with metabolic syndrome and lifestyle related diseases that are relatively preventable because they're not random? Yes, they're difficult to control because it is hard to control our lifestyle and given all the factors, but we can control it. Like the the kind of hard ass asshole answer is like, yeah, just stop eating like shit and go outside and exercise. Like, you know, and I'm guilty of saying that in a nicer way, but you also have to be compassionate to the fact that it's not, there's way more to it than that. That is the nuts and bolts of what has to be done, but there's many reasons why people aren't doing it. It's not for a lack of knowledge. People know that you shouldn't be drinking a bottle a night and smoking all the time and, and eating junk food all the time, but there there are reasons why, there are other reasons why we continue to do those things despite the knowledge that we have. Absolutely. And I think that this is a perfect segue um, into, you use the term lifestyle and that's what we do at the clinic. So when I mentioned about programs or sorry, medical exams, you know, comprehensive medical exams, transitioning into programs. Well, you know, what do these programs entail? One big component in one of the programs, I would say like our top tier based program is you get a lifestyle coach. Now I know I'm still working on the name. It's very simple right now, and it can be very informative for someone who you know doesn't know what that is. They could probably do a really good guess, but we look at lifestyle coaching as fitness, nutrition, sleep, stress management, and toxin control. And what we specialize, me personally, is I try to understand the person at an individual level. I try to understand the physical barriers that somebody has. I also then try to figure out what are the imagined barriers, barriers that they put up in their head, but are not necessarily physical, say like a geographical distance to get to the gym, or I work 60 hours a week um, and I have to do X, Y, Z, you know, those are physical ones. But you know, when it's like, I don't feel like it, these are more of the um, emotional or the psychological barriers that I'm mentioning. And we have a very structured approach to this and I've taught the coaches, you know, my team, I actually have two um, coaches from uh, Dr. Jaminick's lab as well. Shout out to Amani and Jesse. I certainly wouldn't be where I am today without them. Um, But until you deal with somebody's stress, things change is extremely difficult. And this goes for me back to when I, started at Deerfields. I had a sit down with Dr. Knipping, who I've been hired, gone through the process, and he schedules a two-hour meeting with me. 
no agenda ahead of time. And it wasn't an interrogation, but he was really wanting to unpack what was going on in my head. And I'll never forget this. Uh, He basically asked me, what is our most difficult thing that we need to do for our patients? I would guess. Yeah, go ahead. Guess. Yeah, it would have to be something like just managing stress and getting them to believe that they can make the changes that they need to make. You're you actually you're right on the the solution. And what he would say is behavior change. That's the hardest thing that you could possibly do is change somebody's behavior. And why? People are autonomous. Like Daniel, I can't get you to do anything that you don't want to. So then how do you navigate that? And what we would look at is the language of inspiration. And there is a difference between motivation and inspiration. Mm -hmm. Some people would use those interchangeably. I would say that there's actually quite a, a substantial difference between the two. And when you learn the language of inspiration, yes, you are still autonomous, but I can create the conditions in your environment to inspire you to want to change. And that's all I try to get the coaches to do. Eliminate the barriers and create the conditions for inspiration. Now, that's not a cookie cutter approach. You know, you have to take that to the individual level. You know, are they a type A of A? are you know they're very passive so it's a very simple formula but it is a little bit more difficult to put into practice and you know you might be curious about okay what is the difference between motivation and inspiration right uh this actually comes i don't know if it actually was from dr lance secretin um he's an advisor to our clinic he's a absolutely lovely individual uh, I love every opportunity I can speak with him. He's a business coach and a leadership coach and uh, has an extensive amount of work. Uh, I highly recommend any of his books for you, by the way, uh, especially uh, The Spark, The Flame, The Torch, kind of hints at your legacy and things like that and what inspires you. But when I was fortunate to have a conversation with him, you know, he said, motivation is like lighting a fire under someone. It can get them moving and it can get them going in a certain direction, but they're going to get burnt at some point. And you see this very common in sales and things like that. You know, it's, it's a motivating factor. You know, you got to get those sales, you got to get those numbers, those quotas, whatever it be. But oftentimes people do burn out and inspiration is lighting a fire in someone. You know, you're finding that passion, you're finding something that they already had inherently within them and again you're just trying to create that environmental condition for it to kind of spark up and then you kind of cultivate that from there you know spark turns to a flame and a flame leads into a torch and a torch is ultimately guiding others so very very interesting but that's what we kind of try to do at the clinic is eliminate those barriers and then create those conditions for inspiration yeah, I love that differentiation between motivation and inspiration. I often think of it the same. The, the I guess, uh, more surface level analogy I could give to, to anybody listening is like 
motivation is going to be, you know, you watch Rocky or you put on your favorite song and you get fired up to go work out. That that's great. That might push you through a workout. Your buddy, you know, pumping you up in the gym. That's that's motivation. Inspiration is like when you sit at home and you look in the mirror and you're like, well, I really want to improve my health so that I can play with my kids when I'm 90 or my grandkids mm. when I'm 90 or, or you know, whatever your life kind of situation is. That's like the, the thing that's going to make you keep going. You can't just get that pump up song on every single day. It's not going to make you get through the times where you really don't want to do it or or really don't want to go through it. But I think that that is so like you hit the nail on the head there. Behavior change is the hardest thing. And, and it just goes back to like, it's not for a lack of knowledge. You put two plates of food in front of someone. One is, you know, fast food takeout and one is, you know, some, some healthy food and everyone's going to know which one is the right option to make. But the difference is, do you actually make the decision to choose the right option? That's the biggest thing. And I think this is where clinics like yours, where, you know, you guys, you take the holistic approach and you look at everything that this person is doing. And because you've got different healthcare professionals in there, it's not just coming from a doctor. It's not just coming from a, from a nutritionist or from an exercise coach or from whatever. It's coming from everybody. I think the other thing that people like you and I do really well is we take the, the kind of like super high level knowledge from a, a specialist doctor and then break it down to give it to someone as that lifestyle coach. It can seem, I think, kind of like a gimmicky term to some because like, oh, what is a lifestyle coach? What even school does that require? What even, you know, there can be a whole bunch of criticisms to that and all that stuff because it doesn't mean a whole lot to a whole lot of people. But I, in my opinion, and, and you tell me if you agree with this, is like it's the ability to take the high level information and bring it down to a level and coach it to people so that they can understand it in a way that makes sense in the context of their life. I would 100% agree with that. Absolutely. And put it in a way that they can take these principles and practices right into application. Yeah. And like you said, you know, what does it take to be uh, like a lifestyle coach? And I've mentioned that we played with uh, the name a few times, but this, when I first started, I just came from a fitness background. Like I was a personal trainer, I was the exercise physiologist. And it wasn't until I got here where, I really started to unpack that, you know, fitness is just what, like the tip of the iceberg, right? And you might even uh, experience this yourself. You know, you're that personal trainer, you work with them for one hour, they're going to undo all that effort that you put in, in the next 23 hours of that day. Yep. Right. So that put it on to me where I'm like, okay, so, you know, how can I control all these variables and put it in a method that is going to be simple for them and they can actually action. And what is it going to take for me to get to that level? So like I was fortunate enough to already have the fitness background side of things. So I was like, okay, for this role, got to have like a kinesiology or exercise science background. We do the VO2 max and those special kind of testing. Got to be an exercise physiologist. Okay, I locked that down. Well, we took nutrition in undergrad. And I would say our nutrition is a very comprehensive course. Like it was detailed, uh, probably, you know, a really good prerequisite for anybody who's going to go into um, be a dietitian or anything like that. But, you know, this game a bit where it's all about credentials and do you have the authority to kind of coach somebody in a specific scope? Yeah. So while I had the nutritional knowledge, I didn't really have a stamp next to my name to add that credential from a consumer facing. So um, I actually took precision nutrition, 
actually a really good course, I would mm-hmm. say as a whole, um, gave me some different information that uh, I was like, hey, you know what, this actually is very helpful. I do recommend it for any kind of um, professional health and fitness professional that's looking to, to broaden their scope. It's, it's actually a really great course. If you've had a biology background, you could probably get through most of the science. But I would say the critical information is the coaching principles that they actually teach you which I think is probably worth the entire course on its own. So finished precision nutrition. Then I got into heart math. Have you ever heard of heart math? No, that's a new one Uh, for me. Yeah. It's an organization out in uh, California and they've been around for a long time actually. And I would say that they're probably the first company or the pioneers in the field of heart rate variability training. And uh, at face value, it had a little bit of corniness to it, but all it was, was interview style, almost counseling in a way that gives people techniques to deal with their stress management and taking it a level deeper scientifically was related to heart rate variability. And if you actually develop heart rate variability, it actually builds resilience Again, one of these terms that can have multiple definitions and interpretations for people, but heart math uses resilience as the ability to adapt to stress, adversary, or challenge. So just your ability to adapt. And then, of course, having skills. And there was a lot of models where they showed people who were hooked up to uh, heart rate variability tracking technology. And you see them through stressful events compared to relaxing events, you would be surprised about some of these, uh, some of this data. And when we talked about if you till you deal with somebody's stress, behavior change is very difficult. So I found heart math kind of gave me the skills to kind of talk about stress and stress management um, in a way that, you know, isn't gimmicky or things like that. And you also provide an objective way to somewhat measure your ability to adapt to stress. Uh, Also another fantastic course that I would recommend. And from there, sleep is an interesting one to learn. Uh, There's not a lot of, you know, formal sleep certifications out there. Um, I forget, I'm blanking on one of them right now that does uh, a sleep course, but I you know, there's also a million courses out there for everything. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I would say anybody who's looking to understand sleep better, because it is our number one recharging behavior that we have, definitely listen to anything from Dr. Matthew Walker, yeah. uh, podcast, his books, fantastic uh, resource of information when it comes to sleep, understanding sleep, and what happens when we lose it as well. Um, you know, we work at the clinic with a lot of executives, a lot of CEOs, a lot of business owners um, who have jam-packed schedules and they sometimes don't sleep a lot to accommodate this. You know, you're talking maybe less than six hours. Um, and, you know, when you start to communicate some of the impacts that that can have on your body, if I'm not mistaken, you know, four hours less or sleep is one of the strongest predictors of your development of Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, sleep is fantastically important in our day-to-day lives. So uh, 
definitely recommend anybody who's trying to go on this comprehensive health journey and trying to understand all the facets definitely to touch up on on sleep and then also how to communicate sleep and the need for it for some people yeah i think that the sleep thing was an interesting one in light of covid i know for myself so before covid happened working at the gym in there you know all of the hours of the week uh you know up at four bed try to get try to get to sleep by 11 by the time i got home if i was lucky and one of the first things that I noticed, so I wear uh, an aura ring, which Ooh, which, yeah, which yeah, is yeah. an amazing like sleep tracking tool and it tracks HRV as well, heart rate variability. And um, one of the things that I noticed in like the first week or two of, of the pandemic was my sleep scores went through the roof. My HRV went like shot up way up because I was sleeping like garbage and I knew it. I was and it was a sacrifice that I was making like with my eyes open. It wasn't happening by accident and I knew the detriments of it and all that, but it was happening. Um, and it was very, very obvious. Like if I look back on the charts through the app, you can you can tell when the pandemic started just based on when all my scores uh, start improving. And I think that for a lot of people, it was probably similar. You know, you didn't have to commute anymore. You so we had more time to you know you get to sleep in an extra thirty minutes or hour in the morning. You just roll out of bed in your pajamas, open up the laptop, and, and start working. But then somewhere along the way, as things dragged on, it's like, well, I'll just stay up and watch one more episode of, of whatever show. And then, yeah. you know, you, you creep back into that six hours of sleep and we're somehow we're home and don't have to leave. But everyone's always tired somehow. And it's like it's one of the simplest things that we can control. But at the same time, one of the most difficult things to actually make changes at. Absolutely. And I also when I get into sleep uh, education and coaching for people. Um, I actually coach what they're doing one to two hours before bed. Yep. And it's almost, you can really be setting yourself up for failure in a sleep context, depending on what you're doing one to two hours the night before, uh, especially when it comes around, you know, screen time, you know, we have technology just bombarding us in every angle we look right. And these all these devices emit blue light right and this is why you have these blue light filters on the tech but do we know do you know why then you know you, you see a feature but then it's like what was the purpose of it to begin with and you know blue light suppresses melatonin secretion so imagine simply put you looking at your phone you know, one to two hours before bed or say right before bed, you're basically jet lagging yourself for two to three hours when you're trying to go to bed. Yeah. And then that's going to throw off the entire circadian rhythm and you're not going to get, you might get the quantity you were aiming for, but you're certainly not getting the quality that you were aiming for in that amount. Absolutely. And then you think like, what is everyone doing? You know, you're lying in bed and scrolling on TikTok for an hour. And then you wonder why you, you kind of you sleep like shit every day. And I remember you mentioned uh, Dr. Matthew Walker, who I also think is a fantastic uh, resource and person to learn from on all things sleep. And I remember in, in an interview or podcast or something that he did once, he said one thing that I thought was was genius and hilarious at the same time. Someone asked him about whether or not we can bank sleep in this concept of, you know, like we can, you know, if you overeat food, we we build up body fat and that's a reserve of calories and fuel and and then in a period of starvation you can live off that and so we can bank food but if i sleep for 12 hours on the weekend can i get away with sleeping 6 hours during the week or you know whatever the case is to bank that sleep and his answer was was quite intelligent and he said 
Well, unfortunately not. And the best reason that I can think of as to evolutionary, evolutionarily why humans can't bank sleep is because we're the only animals that are stupid enough to sacrifice sleep for other things. So there's never been a reason for mammals to have the need to bank sleep because all the other animals just sleep when it's time to sleep. Absolutely. And uh, I recall that exact component of that interview. I don't know. It, I, that might have been on another podcast, I actually believe. It. And uh, it, he was extremely right. And the other highlight, I think it might have been from the same podcast, was uh, the changes in cardiac incidences as it relates to daylight savings time adjustments. Yeah. You know, and it was like beautifully inversed as well, where it was, I think, 24% increase in cardiac events when we lose that one hour of sleep, 24% increase yeah. in cardiac incident, not even to mention all the um, traffic accident. Data yeah, I was just going to say. And then, you know, completely reversed when we gain that extra hour of sleep. And when you talked about, you know, uh, uh, we are the only species who's stupid enough to sacrifice our sleep. I, I would take it one level further where we some time ago had the genius to create artificial light. <laughs> Us as a species, our master circadian rhythm regulator is light and dark stimuli. Frankly, that's light, daylight and nighttime. And we really should be going to bed and waking up aligned with the sun, like many other species. And I've always said about, you know, take an evolutionary approach when you're trying to understand sometimes the human body or how it's compensating to a situational uh, circumstance or something like that. And sleep is no different. So, you know, we have all this artificial light. And now, like I said, you're suppressing all this melatonin in evolutionary history we've never had to overcome that obstacle yet you know we've overcome starvation locomotion things like that but artificial changes to daylight hours that is really new and you know for some people who aren't aware you know we do not adapt overnight the human body is a marvel in its overall abilities to adapt to the environment but this takes millennia. This takes thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of years to adapt and evolve where what, maybe 200 years of artificial light for us, maybe three. I don't know the exact day when the light bulb was invented, but you know what I mean? And, <laughs> yeah. and fire. Blink of an so, eye. Exactly. So we have a lot of time before our bodies are going to catch up and adapt. So it's really on us from a behavior standpoint. Hey, let's try to cut some of these lights out, especially when you notice the sun's going down. You know, maybe in your house, try to dim some of the lights, put those blue blockers on your devices. There's even a market on Amazon, you know, for blue blocker glasses where you, you know, you have these yellow tint lenses that block out the blue light. So, you know, we adapt, but it's going to take a while before mass people really start to realize, you know, the impact that that can have on your sleep. Yeah. And it won't be the human evolutionary biological adaptation to any of these things will not be in our lifetime or anyone's lifetime who we will know. So yeah. it'll, it'll happen, but like, you know, way down the road. And, and I think that maybe one of the most important things of, of what you're saying is like, 
a lot of these changes that we need to make, they're not overhauls to our entire life. We're not here saying never use your cell phone again. Obviously, that's unrealistic and not like not a feasible solution because it takes away other things. But if you can turn your phone off 30 minutes before you go to bed, if you can go outside for a 10 minute walk in the day, if you can, you know, instead of if you're going to have a snack at night, can you have half as much of that snack? Like these small changes aggregated over time, they can make a big difference. And yes, like they're difficult to start doing that and all that stuff. But to get someone to understand that you don't need to live like a, you know, like a Spartan and, you know, you need to sleep on the ground and, you know, you only eat like, you know, raw vegetables and whatever. Like you don't need to have this like crazy lifestyle. You just need to make minuscule improvements and then aggregate those over time. Absolutely. You know, that's these, you know, small little steps. And that's also a speciality or an art in itself. I would say, When we do our medical exams, you know, at the end of all of this, you get quite a comprehensive report with a fair amount of recommendations, depending on how things came out. And I would say it can be very overwhelming for some. And that's where the art comes in of, hey, you know, this is a lot that we're proposing here, but it's not an overnight switch. We're going to do this over months and maybe even years. And kind of, again, then starting with that stress, if it's certainly one of the main barriers to a lot of this change, you know, um, when I'm working with anybody after about a month, I, humans have a natural uh, tendency to categorize things, right? Um, it has its pros and it has its cons. Uh, now I would categorize people when I start working them in one of three categories, you're either an early adopter where behavior change actually came almost second nature and all you really needed was some kind of authority figure or somebody who you trusted to give you information and you took it on yourself and started implementing. Fantastic. I find for those people, you just have to give them direction and they'll take it. Mm -hmm. So you have an early adopter, you have an early relapser. So, hey, I tried it, maybe hit a barrier, F it, I'm not doing anymore. You know, this is just not for me. Now, that is a person that takes a lot more, I would say, one-on-one coaching. Um, if you've ever heard of motivational interviewing, that's where that becomes extremely beneficial. Again, trying to create the environment for that person to change. And then you would have a failed implementation. And failed implementation is of someone who, yeah, I want to do this, but hasn't done anything. Not even, you know, looked at their report. For those people, I would say that's a, um, a state of ambivalence where, yeah, they kind of wanted to get a checkup on their health, but they're not sure if they want to do anything about what their health status is right now. And that's not an issue as long as you just have an honest conversation to say, you know, if this is not a huge priority for you, when do you think we can touch on this again then? Is it three months, six months? And it could be years if you work through motivational interviewing Uh, There is no timeline on ambivalence. So, you know, somebody can be very quick. Some people can take years. Even for me, it is an example um, working with patients. I had one particular patient, uh, love her. She's amazing. And it took about a year, year and a half before she would see me in a physical exercise context. A year, year and a half. And that's my formal background. So it took a long time 
And now she considers me a lifesaver. I cured her sciatica pain, which she had to go to a Cairo every X intervals of time. And all I said, hey, you know what? If you give me an opportunity, you know, let's just sit down. We'll do a few stretches. Uh, I'll show you some things. And boom, cured her sciatica pain. And now I see her every week for just a routine stretching routine. <laughs> Tongue twisted <laughs> there, but anyways. Um, and it, it helps her. And now I can see her once a week, basically, for uh, pain relief stretching and it's a very simple approach and you just have to be patient um i think that also brings up uh, a few things where it's easy to get attached to outcomes sometimes and it can really play on your mental health so for example somebody who is in that situation could really question themselves as a coach hey you know this person isn't want to see me in this context? Am I doing something wrong? Something like that, where, again, if it's not beyond your control, do not attach your mental state and well-being to an outcome for which you cannot control. That is a perfect way to set yourself up for failure. Um, you might remember when we went back, uh, when we caught up for Pickle Barrel, we had a, a lot of talks on consciousness and mindfulness. Yeah, And there's a lot of principles that can be taken from that. And I've applied them myself. And that one that I just described there, the term is called abandonment for all hope of results. It sounds extremely negative, but in practice, it's hinting at, you know, hey, I'm going to abandon all hope for results for this person, but that's not going to change me wanting to help them that's just me approaching it with the understanding that they are an autonomous being if they do not decide to do the stretching or they don't want to practice i'm not going to attach my mental health to that decision yeah. but again i'm still here to help them no matter what when they feel like they need help and yeah. that's that's tough sometimes I think as a coach, for sure, that's, that's a tough thing because we all, we always want the best for our patients and clients, of course. And we want them to be as excited and as maybe hardcore as we might want them to be. But there are, are way too many factors in one's life for that to always be realistic. And if someone isn't ready to make the changes that you want them to make, then that's okay. If they're doing anything, even if they're just coming to see you and you literally just talk. That's still okay. When they're ready to make those changes, they will decide to make those changes. But forcing it down their throat is is a surefire way that they won't want to do it. And and the and just being even consistent. Like if someone isn't ready to make the make the lifestyle changes, let's just use weight loss as an easy example. If someone comes in and says, oh, "I want to lose weight." Okay, great. We have a conversation. This is what you're doing. This is what I would recommend that you start by doing. And when they hear their recommendation, they say something, their reaction is like, mm, that sounds really hard. That doesn't sound like something that I'm willing to do. Okay, well, let's try plan B. Can you do this? Mm, no, still can't do this. What about plan C? Mm, still can't do that. Okay, then weight loss is just not a reasonable thing for us to try and achieve right now. So let's shift the focus to something that we can actually control. Maybe that is a commitment to drink one glass more water a day. 
Maybe it's a commitment to, you know, go to sleep 10 minutes earlier, anything, whatever, whatever it might be, something that they're legitimately willing to do at that time. And then you start there. And then when they are good and ready, they will commit to the things that need to be done to lose weight or, or any other goal that they might have in mind. But trying to force it on them is, it's almost never going to work. And it is difficult as a coach to, to wrap your head around that. But when you can realize that, okay, these, these are humans, these are not just like, you know, lab rats in front of me that I can just tell them what to do and they're going to do it. If that, if it, if that was the case, we would have the easiest job in the world and everybody would be super healthy, but you know, that's not the case. So there, there's a whole other aspect to this, but I really do believe that, um, laying out what needs to be done and understanding whether or not one is ready to make those changes is a hugely important part of taking control of our own health and, and for our patients and clients as well. Absolutely. Um, and definitely helps with that honesty conversation that we've talked about as well. You know, where are you starting at? What are you comfortable with? When we have that transition point and we, we create that report, I actually call it a 90-day plan. You know, three months, which is a fair amount of time to see significant changes. Mm -hmm. uh, blood marker-wise especially, um, there's one marker called uh, hemoglobin A1C. Uh, it's a reflection of diabetic risk. So, you know, you have hemoglobins, right, in your, in your blood, and they uh, transport oxygen throughout your body. And it's a term that most people might be familiar with the term, but not necessarily what it does. But it is something that transport oxygen throughout your body. But then if you look at this word glycolated hemoglobin, it means sugar is bound to your hemoglobin. And those cells can actually turn over every 90 to 120 days. So again, create a plan and then you have a checkpoint in which progress can be evaluated in so many ways. And I really like 90 days because it is a good interval for realistic expectations and clinical outcomes. Now, at the very beginning of that 90 day plan, um, and this is what I teach all the coaches and everything is, you know, filter this plan through confidence level, feasibility, and practicality. If you filter it through that and have a conversation, usually you're not going to have any issues. You might have to reevaluate some of your plan and rework it to fit that. But if you ultimately aim with the intent to filter it through that, you're going to have a plan that, again, confident feasible and practical. And it gets back to this idea of eliminating these barriers. So, and it all really comes down to a conversation. Um, and even when I go over a report with somebody, I say, you know, this report is just where you start today. This is point A, because where you want to go, which I've already asked you about, you know, where do you want to go from here? The destination is absolutely useless unless you know where you're starting from, right? So that's where the real conversation, the majority of the conversation is had about what do you want to do? You know, what's your willingness for change? What's your appetite for change? And how can we do this together? Um, we also work with a, a naturopathic doctor at the clinic, uh, Dr. Van Gaver, shout out to him. He's been uh, fantastic to work with thus far. And he's out from uh, BC. Uh, and he's been with us for I think about eight months now. 
and his saying, uh, I love it. And it's just, you know, you have to take the first step. I'll walk with you for the rest of the way. You know, I might not be the one to pick you up all the time, but I'm going to be your biggest cheerleader to do so. And again, fostering autonomy, I think is a very important thing. It's a principle that I try to keep true that, you know, if I'm working with you, Daniel, I know reasonably, I'm probably not going to be with you for my entire life, right? That's a very likely outcome. And, you know, even if you wanted to get down to the probability and odds of how many years I'm going to be with you, it, it might not be very much. So therefore, I think the best thing that I can do as a coach is to try to communicate information that is met with like an educational experience, repetition, really to foster somebody's autonomy so that when I'm done my time with them and they move on in life, that they're going to approach other situations and they're going to remember this information and they're going to be able to now make changes in their life without me. And I think that's one of the best things that I can do for them. And every single appointment that I have, I try to keep that principle in the back of my head. How am I building this person's autonomy in lifestyle components? I, I absolutely love that, man. I, I think the same way in that, you know, we're not going to see these patients and these clients forever and nor do I really want to. I would love if I could teach someone everything I know and give them and, and more importantly, give them all the tools to go and figure out whatever else they need to know and then solve problems thereafter without me. And, and be able to take care of themselves without me holding their hand. And then over time of our relationship, I might start off where I'm r really on the ball, texting every single day, give me updates all the time if that's what the person needs and, you know, whatever, but like very much hands on. And then over time, I'm going to kind of wean myself off of that person so that they need to start sort of figuring things out on their own and sort of get to the point where they are autonomous on their own. And like you said, with, with training, it's like, yeah, if I see someone, even if I see someone every single day, they come train with me seven days a week, that's still seven hours out of the week. That's not that much time. I'm not with them for their meals. I'm not with them when they're sleeping. I'm not with them when they're at work, when they wake up in the morning, all those things, all these important other factors of their lifestyle. I'm not there. I just get one hour of exercise and that's it. It's really not that much time. So someone anyone listening, you need to be able to take the first step. And that first step can be anything. It can just be making an appointment with a trainer, with a coach, with a doctor, you know, whoever listening to this podcast even, you know, can be the first step for, for many and just like, okay, I need to start wrapping my head around things. These are things that I need to start thinking about. Maybe this sparks an idea in you to, to do something to improve your sleep, for example. And, and really just taking that first step is it's the most important thing. It's also the most difficult thing because it's almost an admission that it's almost an admission that y you need help. And mm. that can be a very hard thing. And, and I would say, you know, super generally, especially for men to say like, Hey, I need, I need somebody to help me do this. And I think it's because it's someone to help you just be more human. And like, we all think that we should just know how to do this thing. But like you said, our life has changed technologically and whatever so fast. And we've gotten so far away from like the animal side of us. And so we have all these other like factors involved now. And so it's like, how do we, how do we sleep? That should be an easy and obvious thing that we don't need to think about. Like the fact that there were even, that that's even a conversation and an area of research is like kind of ridiculous, but, but it's important. Right. And, and 
it, it's people like us who who can bring this thing down and coach it to other people and then people can take it and, and run with it on their own just to improve their own life to to just be better humans right absolutely and you would be interested i think in our in our approach when we start with somebody and i will i will outline that and get your get your thoughts on it um, but before I do so, you, you mentioned something there about, you know, reaching out and sometimes getting support, uh, especially for that first step, which is typically perceived to be the hardest or the biggest hurdle, not necessarily in, in real life, but sometimes it is for people. But I would say it's definitely uh, psychologically, it gets blown up bigger than what it actually might be. Yeah. Yeah. And, like just, just a, sorry, one second, just no. to clarify what you're saying. Like, I think what you mean is, you know, practically speaking, picking up the phone and making an appointment is really not that difficult, but, but making that decision, make, being humble enough to make that phone call or whatever, that's the, that's the difficult part. You're exactly right. And then it also highlights the social again, and there is, you know, evidence to really support that uh, when you do some of these behaviors in a social context, you are probability and odds far more likely to continue on these behaviors if it's done with a support person or somebody who is in a circle of friends for you. You are two to three times more likely to sustain those behaviors if you do them with somebody compared to doing them on your own. And I'm sure you're, you know, people who are, you know, me, myself and I, and like, they don't need anybody and they can action right off the bat without any support. Those are fantastic people, but I would say they represent a very small uh, percentage of the population. For sure. Most definitely can benefit by having a social person who whether it be the exercise whether it be the food choices and even i'm sure you know you reflect on your life and i bet you can unpack some of the best times or best outcomes that you've had you probably had a support system in that phase of your life right so i would also say to anybody listening is uh definitely get somebody else engaged you know the saying is misery loves company but i don't definitely don't approach it from a misery perspective just you know think of it from a social interaction you know you and a significant other a friend something like that is just doing something together it's a social interaction but at the same time you can take care of your health Um, fantastic dual combination right there and to make it even even a little bit simpler it's just more fun to do it with someone else. Like <laughs> it, if all of the other stuff doesn't, doesn't do it for you about how much more likely you are to succeed and all that, it's just more fun. There's a little bit of friendly competition, especially for anyone who uh, is a former athlete, you know, from, from when we were kids, like you'll miss that. I know that for me specifically, like I don't necessarily miss playing soccer, but I do miss competition. And, and th- that's the thing that I miss more than the actual game of soccer. But anyways, just having that friendly competition with your with your significant other, with your buddy, with your your parents, your brother and sister, you know, whoever it is, uh, those things are are gonna it's just it's just way more fun to go on this journey, so to speak, together. Absolutely. And and like you I, sport holds a very big component of that. You know, uh it is the most uh likely choice of activity for anybody is actually sport. Um, and just like you said, it is super, it's super fun, super simple, and it takes care of a lot of 
systems in the body when you want to get scientific about it. Uh, I, I love the sport and the way you said about competition, you know, that's my kryptonite as well. I'm, you know, a naturally competitive person. Uh, I, you know, my background is in martial arts a lot. You know, I did about 10 years of Aikido. I have a first degree black belt in Aikido. Uh, it's a real self-defense based martial art and, Mm -hmm. um, I thrived on competition. So I transitioned out of that into Muay Thai, um, and had the most fantastic, uh, experience of my life really in that sport context. And it, it just, I needed competition to really thrive in a physical activity standpoint. And for me, you know, being very critical of myself, that's kind of like that all or nothing, um, ideology. Right. And sometimes it can bite you where if you don't feel competition or you're not able to uh, push yourself against somebody else and try to be uh, the best, you kind of do nothing, which is not a great clinical outcome. So it's something that I have to balance even in my own head where I think it's more on the intensity side of things. Like certainly I still exercise, go for walks and stuff like that, but my willingness to crank that intensity up doesn't really get highlighted until I'm in a, competition context for sure definitely itching a little bit in that way too uh to get back to some things uh competition wise especially when things get behind us yeah and even it's like it's kind of like fake competition i don't know if you do this but so lately over the past several weeks or a couple months whatever i've been i started running again just because you know sick of swinging like my same kettlebell around here (laughs) so like started running again anyways when i when i run i kind of do like laps around queen's park which is right Mm -hmm. by where i live and, um, it's kind of like a circle track and there's many people running and walking and doing whatever they do. It's actually quite a hilarious conglomerate of people in that park, but separate conversation. Um, anyway, so people running, I kind of create this like fake competition in my head. Like I see some person that's way ahead of me and I'm like, I was, I want to catch that person. I don't know them. They're, they're doing something totally different. They don't know me. They're not paying attention to me and I don't really care about them, but I create this like fake competition in my head. And I think that's another part of like what we miss so much from the gym it's like, you know, you don't want to do this ego lift competitive thing that like there is a very fine line where this becomes a little bit dangerous and you're pushing the boundaries too far in a stupid way. But there is something about having other people watching and and you pushing your limits a little bit more than working out at home and whatnot. Absolutely. And, and I actually have done something like that and very recently um, where I'm going for walks with uh, my partner, uh, Alyssa, and we're walking and uh, we live in Richmond Hill. So um, we're walking and there's a nice park right next to us with a soccer pitch. And um, we're just doing our thing. And then of course, like I see somebody who's doing full uh, uh, sprints across the field. So, you know, I'm kind of like, I'm getting itchy, you know, and I, I'm shrugging and I'm just kind of moving around. And then, yeah, sure enough, they took off and then I took off after them um, <laughs> and did a full, just, I'm going for a walk, but I have, you know, somewhat I had shorts and a t-shirt and some running shoes and yeah, did a full acceleration run uh, with the intention to try to catch that individual. Yeah. <laughs> um, again, the competition part of me and even I was looking over, I'm like, I feel like I'm going to sprint any second towards this person. <laughs> and she, she just kind of rolls her eyes and laughs. And then sure enough, that's, that's what I ended up doing. Yeah. Um, funny thing, actually, so you've been, you started running now. Um, what's kind of like distance or, or times have you been doing either like, you know, 1k time, 5k times, anything like that kind of updates for your running? Uh, I don't even know the distance, but I just set times and I started off like very 
conservative. I think the first run I did, I said, okay, I'm going to just, I, I just take a stopwatch like on my phone. That's all mm-hmm. I use. I don't use any other technology or whatever, but I said, I'm going to run for 15 minutes, whether I feel good or not, because it's been like, well, since last, last summer, actually I was running a lot, but then since, you know, whatever, August or September stopped. And I know the way that my body is and whatever. So I said, I'm going to run for 15 minutes, whether I feel good or not, I'm going to stop because if I push it too far, then, you know, maybe it'll mess up something with my ankle or something, you know, something's going to be not great. Let me just do that. See how, see how it feels, assess the situation and then kind of continue from there. And then each time I run, I add just, I just add a minute to it. I'm not trying to break any records. I'm not trying to do a 5k race. I'm not trying to do anything. So I think I'm at uh, something, I don't know, 30 minutes or so right now, try and push it a little bit each time. But I mean, trying to catch random people in the park does push me a little bit. I do set a timer. So I know kind of like roughly how many laps and I try and like just beat that every time, just a little bit of competition against my own self in my own head. But it's not something that I'm like, I'm not taking it super seriously, analyzing what I'm doing and like really uh, intentfully progressively overloading it it, to to any meaningful degree it's just like uh, it's just something i can do and something that i can feel improvement at and that's been that's been the biggest thing for me like with workouts because like i said you know i've got a couple kettlebells and bands here but i mean they're not super heavy and i've been doing the same stuff for for months now there it feels like you know there's no progression i'm just kind of getting through the motions and at some point that's fine and that's okay sometimes i still do it but i don't love it and so the running is something well okay i'm gonna be bad at this and and I will see improvement at it. And that is motivating in and of itself or inspiring, I should say. Yeah, there you go. Exactly. <laughs> right. And and it takes a while to actually change your own kind of like language and dictionary uh, in that way. But that was a really good catch actually right there. Yeah. Um, the biggest thing, uh, like my, I told you about my athletic background. I also didn't mention I did a few years of uh, football and wrestling and stuff like that. But um, I never really had an aerobic uh, base. And sorry for the jargon, but for anybody listening, like aerobic is just, you know, your, your cardiovascular fitness, your ability to do, you know, continuous movement patterns, whether that be walking, running, swimming, uh, biking, anything like that. So, um, you mentioned like soccer, you know, it's quite a, a cardiovascular background. Like that's, it's fundamental, right? Your ability to keep up cardiovascular wise. Um, for me personally, when I started running, uh, when I started actually at Deerfield's, because uh, Dr. Knipping was an avid runner and uh, he started running the same day that uh, I started basically. And he, if you ever see rigidity behavior and uh, on point, we have a saying called walk the talk. You know, a lot of people talk the talk, but walking the talk is a completely different thing. Yeah. And he would get up at 422 every morning uh, and start running at five. He would do about 10K. So by the time I got into the office, he was already up. He already had 10K and he had already his charts prepped for the day. And I'm like, wow. And this person was up in their, you know, late fifties. And I'm like, you know, compared to a lot of people younger, I was like, this, this person's just goes and goes and goes. Um, and that actually is what uh, he kind of inspired me to do that because uh, it was also voluntold where he said, Hey, you want to start running with me on Fridays? <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm brand new. I'm brand new, of course. Like, I'm like, I don't want to like lose my job. I don't want to get anything like that. So, you know, you ask me to jump, I'm going to ask you how high. Yeah. Um, so I ended up doing that. And that cultivated into a two year behavior of, we called it Friday morning, 5am club, where we would run 10k every Friday for like two years. I love it. Uh, 
And it was a great way to develop relationship and things like that. And I learned a lot over the time, but the biggest kind of highlight for me, and this is just like from a training perspective is um, my endurance for anything in life drastically improved when I started to learn how to run and I actually got good at running. Um, for anybody out there that you know wants to kind of take that step, especially if you're ever struggling with energy, it seems like a counterproductive statement that you know if you don't have energy, start putting out more energy. But you know, I'll keep it very simple. Your body again is an adaptation machine. You expose it to something, it's going to get better. And anybody out there looking to you know be more physically active, I highly recommend you know uh, a couch to five k program where you know they say couch to 5k the idea of a couch potato somebody who doesn't move and it's a structured program to bring you up to a 5k race distance and duration um, and intensity so definitely something i highly recommend um i kind of just threw myself into 10ks and it was painful at the very beginning <laughs> don't recommend that um but it definitely appreciated uh for me running as a whole and I don't know about you either, but one interesting observation, I'm a very observant person by nature, uh, very analytical. And I found that how I really measured my improvement in running was how loud my feet sound while running. So, you know, you hear those people who are just, you know, almost like lumber steps behind you, right? And then you hear, you don't even hear some people who go right past you. And I noticed that for me personally, I didn't have to like coach my, my gait, which is like how you run, right? How you move your arms and your legs. I didn't have to do anything. I just found like the more mileage I accumulated, my running just inherently improved. Yeah. And the biggest outcome I noticed was how hard my feet were contacting on the ground. Yeah. Um, and I finally challenged myself in a race, I think uh, two years ago, and I did about 5k in 21 minutes. I really want to do a 5k under 20 minutes. I think that's my goal. And I don't really do anything beyond 10k because it does get a little boring for me, <laughs> to be honest. You know, there's some people yeah. who really, really enjoy running and running long distances. Certainly not me. We're at 10k at about an hour, an hour and 20. I'm kind of like, okay, let's, let's move on and uh, uh, let's go on to something different. Yeah, I'm the same. I mean, I used to. I used to like running a lot more when I played soccer. And I think it was just because it was so much easier for me. Like even now it's been a long time since I've played soccer and my cardio is, it's pretty good. Like my endurance is still pretty good despite not having done it for many years. It's like, it's just like my legs and stuff that are getting tired on me now. But I think it, to, to make a note on the adaptation thing. And I, and I've been noticing this the past couple of weeks cause I am also observant as well. And I'm going to try and say this in a nice way, but I'm going to use some words that are not nice. I think there are a lot of people who are huge babies. People say they want to run and I see people running and I am not, you know, I think people will mistake to say that, Oh, I'm a fitness guy. I should be good at running. I'm not a good runner in terms of the scope of running. Yes. My fitness level is above average at, at the minimum, let's say, but I see people running and they're running very slowly and they run for not very long and then stop and they walk or sit down and fine. I don't know their, I don't know their situation. So I'm being a little bit judgmental here, but the point of what I'm trying to get at is like, when it gets a little bit hard, you can't just stop. 
there will be no adaptation if you're not somewhat pushing the boundaries. If you're just doing it to the point where it's like, oh, I took a breath that was a little bit deeper than the one before, I should stop. That's not going to cut it. You need to like push through it. And for me, one of the biggest things that I like about running is not the physical stuff. It's the mental stuff. It's boring for me. I don't like it. It's difficult. It's hard. But when I can force my, when that voice in my head is like, okay, yeah, you've done enough. You could probably stop now. It's like, nope, I committed to X distance, X time, push through it and, and just, you know, shut up and keep going. And then, you know, lo and behold, you're able to keep going despite the voice in your head saying no. That's when you feel like, oh, okay, I, I accomplished this. Like I can do this. I can do hard stuff. And one of the things that I love the most about fitness in general, whether it be running or strength training or any type of exercises, it's a controlled environment to do hard things. So that when real hard things come up in life, you are, you have some tools to be able to handle that. Circling back to all things COVID, I think COVID is one of the, in our generation, you know, over a paint, painting, you know, over the vast majority of us, it's the most difficult thing that we've had to deal with. Our life has been relatively easy up until now. So we're faced with this hardship and it's like, well, I don't, I have no tools to, to deal with something that's not on a gold platter for me. And I think that fitness is one of those things where, Again, it's relatively controlled. You can push the weights, you can push the, the, the speed, you can push the intensity in a controlled manner so that when things outside of the gym are actually difficult, you have some tools within you to, to deal with a little bit of hardship. Absolutely. And uh, I, I really like actually the way that you put that about being in like in a safe environment to kind of practice. And then it just makes the application in real life uh, that much safer and also easier. I, I actually really like that. And what you mentioned about um, kind of comfort, I think that's also an important term or word as a whole. And this is per my, my personal belief is that I, I never really want to develop a comfort zone. I, I, I do genuinely want to keep uh, pushing. And that actually relates more to uh, some of the mindfulness principles, which one of them uh, you have like attachment, you have aversion, and you also have ignorance and ignorance is, is not knowing. So, you know, until you kind of do, you don't know, uh, kind of terminology. So I constantly like to try to push, uh, my comfort zone so that I'm kind of constantly adapting. Like you said, if you're not putting yourself at that level where you feel uncomfortable, you know, your body is not going to adapt. And I did mention earlier that we are an adaptation machine. I think it's important that you just highlighted that there is a certain level that you need to push in order for your body to say, hey, that was pretty challenging. I should probably make myself stronger. I should make myself faster for the next time I encounter that in my environment. So you, there is an underlying level that you, know, you definitely need to push yourself. And I, and I kind of simply put it, don't shy away from a challenge every now and then. It can actually be incredible for your life uh, in many ways. You know, you can feel more confident. Uh, your body can just feel better. You know, it gives you a lot of mental and physical uh, benefits. But certainly there is a group of individuals that I find that uh, don't like to be uncomfortable. And that could mm -hmm. be for many other reasons. And it's just something, again, you as a coach, you know, whether it be communication, um, you know, building up your relationship where sometimes they might look at you and actually be the person that they would prefer to be uncomfortable with. 
you know, same idea of being vulnerable with somebody. Um, so, you know, you can keep working with it, but definitely for some people, I say they, a push can be very beneficial uh, yeah. to push yourself mentally and physically for sure. And, and that's, I think, part of the biggest reason or part of some of the major benefits of enrolling in a program like at your guys' clinic or having a coach or a trainer or whatever is because you have that external person to push you. One thing that I think that I'm good at, going back to my example of people kind of quitting on themselves running is like, as a trainer, I'm good at knowing when someone is actually pushing themselves and when you're just quitting physically, right? There's a lot going on, but I can kind of notice these things. And so when you have someone watching you, holding you accountable to say, nope, you can do one more rep. You, you, you can do it. I can see that you can do it. Or you can push for one more minute on the run or whatever. It's, it's a lot easier to keep going. And same back to that accountability buddy that we were speaking about earlier. Right. So it's, it's not about, it's not about pushing yourself to the point where you're going to puke and you need to be a super athlete. It's just about make yourself a little bit uncomfortable and be okay in that, in that discomfort. And, and, and you'll, you'll realize, you know what you do it once and you're like, Oh, I'm okay. I survived. I didn't die. I got a little bit more out of breath, but I'm good. Right. And then you just kind of keep pushing that boundary a little bit more and more each time. Yes. And we were talking and I, and I mentioned some time ago now that I was going to overview like our structured uh, approach to our programs and the idea of you're not going to see somebody forever. Um, and you kind of mentioned, you know, seeing somebody every day for a week and, you know, kind of going from there where when we start with somebody again, in that first three month interval, I would like to see somebody every, uh, I see a person one day, per week for four weeks. So I basically see you every week. Um, and then from there, I would go bi-weekly. So I see you every two weeks. And then by the end of the third month, I again make my evaluation. Hey, does this person, uh, have they kind of retained enough, practiced enough where they can kind of float a little bit more autonomously? If you are, perfect. I'm more comfortable seeing you on a month-to-month kind of basis. And that's just that accountability again, you know, if you see somebody, uh, if you stretch the interval too long, this is where you'll see sometimes people revert to old behaviors and things like that. So I do find it healthy to have like check-ins on a structured interval. And that could be, you know, I found month to month be very helpful or even six weeks. So that first interval, I see you a lot. And the main purpose of that is to implement the most amount of change. Um, Also accounting for, it's going to be a bumpy road. Some people are more fortunate than others. So, you know, I kind of give that first three months to try to get as much traction as possible. And if we have to repeat that for another three months, hey, that's fine. And then from there, maybe we can go more uh, of a touch base every month kind of perspective. Um, so that's kind of how we, as a grand scheme, run some of our health-based programs, but I would say that those appointments are also very personalized to the individual and what they're coming with us with. So, you know, some people where it's just stretching and mobility, where others are now kind of getting into advanced lifting, you know, plyometrics and things like that. Um, So it's a wide spectrum, but I like to have kind of a systematic approach nonetheless. Yeah. And I think this is really where some of the art of coaching or, or therapy kind of comes in because you, you have to have like a system that you generally build everything off of. Like you might not 
exactly see every single patient once a week or whatever it is, but that's your kind of your default setting. And then you individualize it to every patient and maybe zero of your patients actually follow that like legitimate default setting to a T, right? But you, it's up to, to you, the coach, you, the therapist, you, the whoever to be able to say, okay, this person needs a little bit more attention. This person needs a little bit less attention and, and then kind of navigate that and watch as it ebbs and flows too. And I agree with you that I really like that three month timeline because kind of the way that I say it to, to people is like, it's a long enough time or period of time for us to see significant change, but it's not so long of a time that it's daunting for you to commit to. If I tell you, okay, we're going to sign up, we're going to start working together and I need a, a, a two year commitment from you. You're going to be like, oh, come on. I don't even know what I'm doing next week. You expect me to like know what I'm doing next year and two years from now? like, that's ridiculous. But three months sounds like, okay, that's, that's a reasonable amount of time that I can commit to doing this. And then we'll see where it goes from there. Now, everyone knows that it's going to take more than three months to like turn your, you know, to totally uh, accomplish all your health goals and all this stuff. But having that, that short term goal to like see some accomplishment and then you as the trainer to see like, okay, yeah, we've made legitimate change. There are serious improvements in blood markers, in weight, in, you know, whatever the, the end goal might be. Um, I think it just really helps a lot with on both sides, patient and uh, coach therapist. And bit of a tangent, but as you mentioned, like blood markers, again, I do see as like an industry, this is something that I would say is lacking in the sense, I think that a lot of um, allied healthcare professionals can really help patients by giving them education on how lifestyle behaviors have a direct impact on very specific blood markers. And it's blood markers that people are well familiar with. You know, people know statin drugs, people know cholesterol drugs, uh, diabetic drugs. And to think that your lifestyle doesn't influence these blood markers is, is a very silly notion. But I, I kind of played in my head, um, you know, every small opportunity you see or a gap in the market, you know, that's where you can start a small business. And I play with the idea of, you know, kinesiology, you know, if you were in, you know, Kin 1020, all those years ago, uh, Kin 1020 was basically fitness uh, and health uh, introductory course for York University kinesiology students, uh, you know, maybe 900 people in a class, right? And uh, in these grand stand style seating. And I can imagine myself if I was, you know, Dr. Cook or somebody like that sitting at that front and saying, you know, who knows that. Uh, exercise is beneficial for blood sugar. You know, you have everybody probably raising their hand. Same thing for cholesterols. Uh, same for, you know, blood pressure. Now, I would then kind of popped in my head. I was like, now, keep your hand up if you know what actual normative values are for the human body. You know, what is actually a really good LDL cholesterol value? What is a really good HDL cholesterol value? triglycerides. I mentioned hemoglobin A1C. What about fasting glucose? Let's take it even a level deeper. Let's talk about inflammation markers like highly sensitive CRP, uh, ferritin, your iron levels. What about B12 and vitamin D? You know, some pretty big vitamins with regards to energy metabolism and immune health. Um, you know, so we know these behaviors are beneficial for the overall marker. But again, what is like the granular level where, you know, hey, Daniel, you know, we've been working together for three months 
and I see your diabetic risk has improved. But what is the more interpretation? Is it at a risk level? Is it, you know, at a really good level? You know, are you type two diabetic? So really knowing where those values are and then what lifestyle behaviors influence them. I think there's a bit of a gap there, especially for people with kinesiology based backgrounds. Um, even personal trainers, I could say, because again, you can be the facilitator for the behaviors that really influence these markers. Um, I'm kind of working on this in a bit of a background to kind of create like a clinical integration based course that kind of gives you a more of a deeper understanding of metabolic syndrome and a few other of these markers and specifically how you can use like lifestyle to treat these and you know some of case studies of what numbers can look like in reality. Yeah, um, I think I think that's ahead. a really good I think it's a really good idea and I agree with you that it is something that is missing just from the from the knowledge pool. And and if anything if you can even I mean, some people don't like the average person won't know what those numbers are and they don't necessarily care what the raw number is as long as you, the professional, tell them that this is better than before. Okay, great. You know, that's, that's what kind of people are listening for and that's fine and good too. But you know, we as the health professionals, we should have a, an objective way of measuring this and so that we can speak to each other about what's going on, um, w with patients. And I think that, uh, you know, in terms of like the motivation and the, the, the behavior change, putting numbers on it and giving someone objective measurements that say this is improving and here is the, the the numerical proof because everyone can understand that. If you even think of the simplest examples, weight on the scale, numbers going down, generally people can understand that that is an improvement when you are talking about weight loss or lifestyle change, right? Or lifestyle improvement rather. So having blood markers that we can put a number on and say this is improving and here are the numbers to support that is another thing that will reinforce good behavior once it's been applied yes and when i do some chart prepping so i say for like these progress based reviews um typically what i will kind of look i'll look at the blood markers and any other health metrics ahead of time so that could be uh, body composition analysis we use uh embody 520s which is a very very fancy uh bioelectrical impedance analysis device which is you know anybody listening who's had a, a scale where you have to wear you know bare feet and it's got like these metal contact pads uh, it's basically sending electrical impulses through your body that you don't feel and what it's measuring is how long it takes for those impulses to rebound to the scale and uh, electricity follows the path of least resistance uh, which is water so once your body once you're able to calculate like how much water you got um, you can kind of calculate your body fat mass your muscle mass uh, some of them are getting fancy now and talking about visceral fat and things like that. That's the fat in your organs. So we have, I get body composition data. I get blood pressure data, oxygen saturation data, some psychological questionnaires. Um, and then of course, all these blood markers and very simply all I look at them, I, I look at all these markers and I kind of create something in my head. I'm like, okay, this marker went up. If this marker went down for all of these, what in the lifestyle might explain that? And then when I actually have the meeting with them, I ask questions to try to solve each one of those markers. And then I kind of say, okay, does what they're doing match the outcomes? Or is there something going on here where maybe um, perception isn't reality? 
or there's just something going on that doesn't really explain it and that should warrant further investigation. Um, but it works actually pretty well um, and also really helps communicate and have the conversation when they're like, yeah, you know, I really, I took myself out of diabetic risk. Yeah, you know what? You're actually exing, exercising more compared to our last visit. You know, you started practicing intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding. You know, that's also a behavior that will really help. You know, you're actually sleeping better and sleeping does help overall systemic body function. Um, hey, and you took a supplement. You took berberine, which is very effective for lowering blood sugar. So, you know, when you have a conversation, you can tell them all the positive kind of things that they've been doing to help with this marker. And now they actually see that the marker has gone down. And that's a pretty good experience for them. And then again, you're kind of just saying, yep. And you know what? We're going to continue this momentum going forward. You know, if there's more to be had in the marker, then you kind of give them a goal. You know, okay, now we're going to bring it down to this level. And again, three months from now, we'll do the same process. We'll check in and see how you're doing. And if it's not going well, then we just reevaluate that plan and filter it through those practicality, feasibility, and confidence. And you kind of just keep that um, oscillation going on. More data is, is always better. It just paints a more complete picture of what's going on and allows you to marry, um, what one perceives to be happening with what is actually happening. And mm -hmm. this is something, you know, I don't use as comprehensive data as you do. I don't have the re resources, um, to that obviously because I'm not in a clinic setting, whatever, but even just like with weight and body composition, someone comes in and says, Hey, I've been on point with XYZ lifestyle changes, XYZ dietary changes and exercise outside of the gym. Okay. You've been on point, but you know, all the body composition markers have, have worsened something's missing here, right? So yeah. either, either that person is lying and which is, which is possible and happens, right? They're, they're scared to admit that they haven't been following what they've been told, or they misheard, uh, what I said, they've been doing something incorrectly by the fault of mine or a fault of theirs. And so then it's like a, an opportunity for both of us to come together and say, okay, here's the story. And here's what the data tells us when these two things don't match, we've got to figure out why that's happening and then implement or fix whatever we should have been doing to actually create the changes that we genuinely want to make. That's exactly, exactly kind of the formula, at least what I practice and kind of what I try to teach and certainly don't believe, you know, it's a perfect method. I don't believe there's anything that's really perfect. It's uh, we don't have an example of perfect and it's also a moving target in my opinion. So I, I would also say perfect is the enemy of very good or mm -hmm. great. So you know, this is the approach that um, I developed over a few years now, and it's been beneficial and it's open up for revision anytime. And I like, you know, you said the aura ring and you talked about um, more data and some people I found there can be a data overload point for some people. Absolutely. Especially with what's available these days, it's easy to get lost and to navigate it all. So whether you have technology or, um, clinical team members or other support team members that can help filter that information. It's extremely beneficial. Um, and you're using Aura Ring, which is a great device. I've actually recommended it to quite a few of my patients. I'd be interested in your, your thoughts about how it's actually helped you. If it's given you any uh, insights, for example, like I know some people have had miraculous insights on, you know, 
alcohol consumption and their sleep, whether it be like REM quality sleep, which is rapid eye movement uh, sleep. It's a specific stage of sleep for uh, cognitive restoration and memory consolidation. But if you, you know, have that bottle of wine that I mentioned in a previous patient and, um, and uh, measure your heart rate variability, you're going to see some changes. And then, uh, so I'd be interested in what you kind of learned. And then also, uh, if you ever looked at uh, WHOOP as well, or WHOOP, um, uh, W-H-O-O-P, which yeah. I would say is probably not, they have their own niches, but I would say in terms of the, some of the most technologically advanced health trackers out there, I'd probably say Aura Ring and Whoop are near the top there. Uh, Fitbit, of course, was the first on the market, but when, or the most prominent one in the market, but the the analytics is where it kind of took it to the next level. And I would say Aura Ring and Whoop were the first ones to do that. And now you see Fitbit kind of trying to follow in suit with you know sleep scores and, and things like that. But I would be interested, like I said, in your how Aura Ring has helped you. And if you ever kind of looked at, uh, the difference between Aura Ring and Whoop when you made your decision, and did you ever come from a like a Fitbit background at one point? So I had a Fitbit uh, years ago, and it, it was fine. Um, it just it, I had I don't remember what the brand or what the model number was, but it it just tracked um, steps, which was mm-hmm. fine. I wore it for a while, um, mostly out of curiosity. I, I stopped wearing it genuinely just because I didn't like wearing a watch. I found myself taking it off all the time to, to work out, to which is like defeats the purpose. If I'm taking it off to work out because it, I found for me, it just gets in the way. And uh, and I'm like, well, if I'm taking it off when I'm working out, then what's the point of this? So I, I got rid of it and it was only tracking steps. wasn't all that um, interesting per se. And then when I when I got the Aura Ring, I really wanted for sleep. The Aura Ring is not great or it's it's just not it's not an activity or fitness tracker. I definitely take it off when I work out because it's on my finger. So if I'm grabbing barbells and, and dumbbells and stuff, like it's likely to get scratched or break or something like that. I think it is pretty durable, but I just take it off and it doesn't really give me any insights to uh, fitness levels or, or fitness tracking. The whoop to the whoop strap to my knowledge is much a much better fitness tracker and is actually great at tracking your, your workouts in terms of your heart rate during the workouts and whatnot. Um, but I, my intention was to have something, uh, that was going to track my sleep. And again, with the whoop strap, it was a bracelet again, or, or like a watch style. And so the reason that I didn't like the Fitbit was because it was a watch style. And so I was like, well, I'm not, I don't really want to jump into another one. I said, okay, a ring, maybe I can, maybe I can deal with that. And, uh, Aura sends like, um, a little test kit, like a sizing kit. So you get like a little plastic version of the ring just to wear it. And just to test the size. And so I wore that for a week or so and said, okay, this doesn't bother me. I, like, I like it. So I'll, I'll wear it, wear it. Anyways, what I've learned mostly from it, I've had it for a little, almost two years now. And at this point, the biggest thing that I can say is that it's an accountability buddy in that every morning I check my sleep score and I don't want it to be a shit score. So, so I do <laughs> the thing. So I, I sleep well anyways. I have good sleep habits. I don't have trouble sleeping. Like I don't have personally don't have trouble like falling asleep or staying asleep or any of those kind of things. Um, so I'm lucky at that. Um, but I still don't want that score to be a low number. I, I want it to be a high number. I want to see those eighties and nineties every day as, as often as I can. Um, but in terms of the insights, heart rate variability was a very, was one that I'd never tracked or had any way of tracking previous to having the ring. So that was something new to me. And I noticed that it changes a lot, uh, when I'm not sleeping, when I'm training too hard, for too long and not recovering well enough. That was um, an interesting one. 
I also noticed that even leading up to getting a little bit of a cold, you know, sleep numbers and random, not random, but uh, some of the markers would start going down or going up like my body temperature at night and stuff like that. And I was like, well, but I feel fine. And then sure enough, two, three days later, like I have a cold. Um, so that was interesting. You mentioned the alcohol. That was also a, a very eye-opening one where, you know, if you have like a bunch of drinks and you're hammered, yeah, you, you know, your sleep score is going to be garbage and you you know that you slept poorly. Like that's not a surprise to anybody. But it, the more surprising one was you have one beer, one glass of wine, you know, just with dinner or something, not, you know, anything. And you go to sleep and you assume that you slept fine, but there is a notable uh, decrease in, in all of your sleep measurements, your heart rate is faster. Your breathing rate is faster. Your body temperature is higher. Your heart rate variability is lower. Um, and so it's all bad things. And now it's not super significant, but it's significant enough to notice it. And then, so that, so imagine if that's one drink, which is not that uncommon and not extremely unhealthy per se, but if you extrapolate that a little bit more, well, what about two drinks, three drinks, four, 10 drinks, right? It, it gets worse and worse and worse. Um, another thing that I, that I noticed, and it's one of these things also that you kind of know it, but until you see the numbers, you don't truly believe it is coffee. I love coffee. I drink, I drink a fair bit of coffee, I'd say. And and I think everyone who was from Ronnie's class, we all drank coffee. That machine was cranking all hours of the day. It still is by the way, actually, that (laughs) thing is going strong. It's, it's on its last legs, but it's still going strong. That's amazing. But uh, one of the things was like, if I drink coffee too late in the day, it does affect my sleep. I have no Mm -hmm. trouble falling asleep. I can have a double espresso and go and fall straight to sleep. That's not an issue for me, but my quality of sleep will be lower. And that was something that I, I, I kind of knew it to be true, but I was like choosing to ignore it in favor of wanting to have coffee just because I enjoy it. Um, so that was another, another big eye opener as well. And, and I, I'd say the last one was eating late. So eating like within two hours of, of bedtime was something that also negatively affected sleep to a lesser degree than the coffee and alcohol did, but it still did affect sleep to, to, to a bit, to, to a degree. And that's that last one. Um, I couldn't say that, you know, that is not important. It is incredibly important, uh, the late night eating phenomenon. And to kind of tie a lot of this together to what we were talking previously about, you know, sleep hygiene and circadian rhythm and that regulator, uh, I mentioned that the primary one, you know, is uh, by light and dark stimuli so daylight and and nighttime but you also have peripheral clocks in your body these these clocks that kind of know when it is and what time it is and melatonin of course again being that master one of the master regulators of your sleep you can imagine that when that's being secreted when again the sun is down we don't got these artificial lights so you're body's really priming yourself for hey it's bedtime it's time to recover and you go ahead and stuff food in your body you are not in a state to optimally digest that food metabolize that food and then actually provide those nutrients to the body you're just you are not in a position to actually do that and i would say efficiently you can do it you're just not going to do it to your body's best abilities And when you actually look at some of the research on that phenomenon, late night eating is probably the number one behavior for development of diabetic risk 
and weight for sure. Weight management and the struggle of weight management. So uh, we have a saying kind of that, you know, feed the train when it's in motion. Um, so that kind of highlights, you know, when you're moving and active, it's typically the daytime. And when the sun goes down, ideally just not a great time to eat as a whole. So certainly not surprised by the information that you got from it, but it's fantastic that you've made that association. And then can that follow up with just say a revision in your behaviors, which is, yeah, maybe I'm going to try to cut back my late night uh, eating. And this is where I find um, time restricted fasting protocols work really well. You know, intermittent fasting is a catch term for me. Um, You know, there's so many different methods out there. You know, you know, Ramadan is a, is a fasting method. Um, uh, alternate day fasting, time restricted feeding, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but most people work off time restricted feeding, which is, you know, you, you fast for 16 hours, 14 hours. Uh, technically, that's time restricted feeding. And I found that to be very positive for eliminating late night eating behaviors. And also the research shows that if you have an eating time like that, that's regimented, you're actually facilitating another circadian rhythm regulator. Um, I have a, I don't know if I actually told you, but I did my master's as well in, uh, at York and I took uh, Sedia, Rolando Sedia's uh, advanced nutrition course. I think it was genetic, molecular and nutritional aspects of obesity. Uh, pretty detailed course. And uh, we had to pick out of a hat for some articles that we had to present to the class. And um, there was one that was on time-restricted feeding. And this was a couple of years ago when it was still, you know, kind of in it, I think it's still in its prime, but it was a little bit more early days. And it was a nature uh, article. And I, anybody who, you know, listening in the, in the research field, uh, nature as a journal um, is a very detailed, very comprehensive-based journal. Um, I didn't know this at the time. I'm, I'm not a formal you know, wet lab researcher, you know, working with mice and stuff like that. But uh, I saw it and I was like, hey, I didn't get that one out of the hat, but nobody claimed it. So I said, hey, can I do that one? I'm, I'm more personally interested. And everybody looked at me like I was kind of off my, off, <laughs> yeah, the, uh, because they knew that it was a very complex article. And I never, I didn't have no idea. And it, it was actually so cool of a study where um, they basically took mice. And when you're doing studies, um, you kind of want to see the impact of say like an enzyme or something like that. The, the common approach is to what's called knock that out, where you basically breed a mouse that say that lacks that enzyme from development, and then you see its impacts on its health outcomes. So for these mice, they actually knocked out their entire circadian rhythm regulation system. Wow. Like very complex, right? I, I couldn't even believe that this was like a possibility in the research field. And what they did with these circadian rhythm knockout mice, they put time restricted feeding protocols on one of the branches of mice. So then they had one that were knockout with the time restricted feeding, and then they had just knockouts and just carry on their lives. The circadian rhythm knockout ones and no time-restricted methods uh, drastically increased obesity and other metabolic disease markers quite rapidly. But the 
such interesting thing was when you impose time restricted feeding, it corrected itself completely in the absence of having a circadian rhythm. So you practicing time restricted feeding actually sets uh, its own rhythm and you can actually help your body in a grand scheme of things and how it operates just by practicing a method like that, which I thought was super, super cool. A bit of a tangent, but um, I know what you said about like late night eating and simple behaviors like this that are rhythmic. Our body loves rhythms. So almost if you can introduce a behavior that establishes a rhythm, it's it's really nice. Yeah, I'm I'm so happy you brought it up actually because I was itching to just to talk about intermittent fasting branching yeah. off that last topic as well because I mean that that study uh, is fascinating that it's it's that powerful. I mean, it, it, thinking about it very logically, it seems yeah that that seems reasonable, but I wouldn't have imagined that it would be that uh, impactful. But what I kind of wanted to ask you about and get your opinion on was, I think that I like intermittent fasting and time restricted feeding and all that kind of stuff as a concept, as a tool. It's not for everybody, but it's, you know, whatever. It has its place for sure. Um, But I think where a lot of it is ruined is where people who read an article or a headline about it and then take it somewhere where it's not, where take it completely out of context. And what I mean by that is this. People say, oh, I I do intermittent fasting. I don't eat my first meal until 3 p.m. Okay, that's fine. But then you're eating until 10 p.m. Like intermittent fasting, people say, oh, it's just skipping breakfast. But if you look at the research, like you just mentioned, that is not the right way to do it. You're just skipping a meal if you're doing that. Yeah, you're still getting some of the benefits of having that restricted feeding window, but you're not doing it properly. The, the correct way to do it would be to like eat when the sun's up and then stop eating at like, you know, five o'clock or whatever when the sun starts to set. That's the way to do it. It's not about saving all your food so that you can pig out at dinner with your friends at 10 p.m. That's that's not what it's about. It's not about, you know, saving all your calories so that you can go out at night. That That is counterproductive and it's probably causing as many issues as it's solving and therefore it's just kind of negligible. But I, I just kind of wanted to to put that out there and see what you what you think about that as well. I would agree with that uh, mostly, and I think that is similar to the idea of like r- right way to do keto and wrong way to do keto. Yeah, I think yeah. it's kind of similar in that regard. There's a right way to do the fasting and and not, and it's getting back to that rhythm, that circadian rhythm. And again, if you can align it like that uh, daylight time, you're definitely going to increase the quality and the clinical outcomes. And yeah, you can be setting yourself up for failure if you're doing fasting in that manner and really pushing that first meal. Now, when I have somebody who's not familiar with intermittent fasting at all, and um, one of the very first questions I get, well, you know, I heard that breakfast was the most important meal. And I say, yes, actually, you're 100% right. I don't believe that information has changed at all. what is up for debate now is when that first meal should be in the context of your day. And I even say, I take it one level further and I say, look at the word. What is the word? Break fast. There's a f- certain amount of hours that context, you know, a fast. Yep. So, and again, idea of feed the train when it's in motion. And I, I've mentioned a few times about taking an evolutionary approach. You, you can imagine many years ago, 
uh, when we don't have the food accessibility and availability that uh, we have today. Uh, you know, when you woke up, you didn't, you were probably very fortunate if you had leftovers or food, right? So you probably got up, you know, you did some hunting and gathering. Um, and then, yeah, you probably engorged quite a large amount of calories in a short window of time. And we probably did that for thousands of years at one point. And again, we adapted to that and we still have mechanisms that really support that method of eating. So for anybody on the you know time-restricted feeding, there are few things you definitely want to consider. One is like your overall day. Um, absolutely, you know, do you have busy days or not busy days? Uh, your training. On top of that, you know, especially if you're a morning exerciser, but you're not eating your first meal to noon or one, you know, that's something that you should be really considering. And uh, especially for uh, women, I would say, you know, chemically, a little bit more complicated underneath uh, women as a whole, and it needs to be accounted for. And I would say the um, status of menstruation is incredibly important. So, you know, are you uh, kind of currently, are you menstruating? You know, are you in this perimenopausal phase or are you postmenopausal? Underneath, chemically, uh, quite a phenomenon that goes on and actually fasting should be refined based on where you're at because um, you know if you're menstruating you know the idea is that you're still in child bearing years well you can imagine your body's geared up for uh, developing a fetus but you're fasting you're not giving yourself calories so you can imagine a very simple approach here that might not work for how your body's chemically set up at this point in time, but perhaps postmenopausal, where you know childbearing years are pretty much behind you, and your hormone values change. You know now fasting can be something that can be incredibly beneficial for your body. So I find there even is like a, a significant um, gender sex based uh, difference between fasting methods, and it's it's a long conversation, but. I would certainly say that by the vast majority of people could definitely benefit by pushing that first meal a little bit later in the day, almost the idea of like a brunch, you know, I would say anywhere between that 10 to noon mark is a really good spot to be at. And then, yeah, finishing around that like six to 8 PM time overall is pretty good as it relates to that circadian rhythm and the daylight. Of course, when you're in a, a country uh, area like ours and we have oscillating seasons, oscillating the amount of daylight time, there might be a few factors to consider furthermore, but uh, to keep it very simple, like I said, that 10 to noon mark from six to eight mark is a pretty good window at which you can um, eat and then get all those benefits from fasting. Yeah. And I think, I think really, uh, you know, some of the, one of the take home messages from, from what you just mentioned there in relation to females and, and menstrual cycles and whatnot is that, and extrapolate this to anybody, whatever your life situation is, um, you can't be married to a certain diet or lifestyle protocol. If you choose to try a type of intermittent fasting, if you want to try keto, if you want to be vegan, you know, do try whatever you want, but don't be so rigid in your, ability to follow through on that. If you try it and it is messing things up for you, then scrap it and find something better. Fasting is not the answer for everybody. Keto is not the answer for everybody, right? It has to fit your lifestyle. And, and just going back to what I said about the super late eating, I think people 
people miss that. That is another aspect of what people miss is that they're trying to create this lifestyle where they can go out at night and have a big meal at night. And so, okay, fasting allows me to do that. In a sense, if we're talking only about the total calorie consumption in a day, yes. And and if your only goal is fat loss, then I mean, you know, sure, it might get the job done, but you're kind of creating other problems as well. So, you know, your lifestyle, your genuine lifestyle and your dietary habits have to kind of be in, have to be congruent with each other. They can't you can't try and fit one into the other because then you're just you're creating other problems that you're solving by implementing new protocols. And what you just said there is an exact example of a conversation that you might need to have with a patient or, you know, or a client and um, just outline, you know, this, this information and then try to, you know, create the conversation about, okay, then what's willing to give or what are you willing to change to maybe align it? Because again, I know where you want to be and I know what you're doing. And sometimes these aren't going to align perfectly. So something's got to adjust. and. I'm fine with that. I'm a guide. I want, I'm here to help you get to where you want to be. I'm also a professional in the field and I'm going to give you the information and tell, you know, if this isn't going to work for you, we should be looking at something else. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. I think one, one phrase I've been kind of playing with in my head and I, I say this all the time is like, we don't make the rules. You know, there are certain things that happen uh, or physiological changes or, or mechanisms that occur. We don't get to make the rules, but we do get to choose the strategies to implement those rules. Think of it like a sport, right? In football, there are certain rules and you have a playbook of how you want to implement or, or play within those rules. And our body is no different, right? And so you just need to find the thing that works for you, but you can't ignore the rules because you, you can't just overwhelm your, your body. It doesn't, it doesn't work like that. Yeah. And that kind of highlights, you know, certainly uh, you can perceive stress, of course, we all perceive stress in different uh, levels, but the body can definitely have its own, uh, it does have its own chemical version of stress. And that can put your body in quite a storm. Um, even when I'm communicating with patients, and we talked about, you know, maybe health markers aren't coming out the way that we were really hoping for. Um, one wild card. And I call it a wild card because it's very easy to account for qualitatively. You can tell me that you're stressed, but qualitative, uh, quantitatively, like numerically, uh, very difficult to account for the magnitude of stress and its impact on uh, lots of health markers. So like just a, a quick example is uh, when we're stressed, we release cortisol. People are somewhat familiar with cortisol. It's basically a stress hormone. Now, when we have this chemical in our body, it's going to do a lot of things, you know, it kind of touches on a lot of different systems. And, you know, you are probably well uh, familiar with fight or flight response, right? So that's part of our nervous system, but you can also call it like our stress response, right? Uh, we are, are going to fight or we are going to fly or flee from the threat or stress that we perceive. Now, let's use sugar as an example. So you, again, need to, you see a saber-toothed tiger back in the day. You're going to be stressed. Your life is on the line. Uh, your survival and your reproduction are coming into question here. So part of that cascade of stress, you're going to release cortisol. And cortisol will actually stimulate you to produce sugar in your body. 
and put it into the bloodstream. Why? Like, you know, when I, I always look at evolutionary, why would our body want to do this? It's actually priming your system for the energy that you need to either fight that threat or to sprint your ass out of there. Now, unfortunately, we haven't developed enough to, our bodies haven't developed enough to know the difference between that saber-toothed tiger and that past due bill or some other 20th, 20th, 21st century problem that we have. But biochemically, our body's responding the exact same. So I've seen an individual on a phone call, a business owner, one of his top vendors is possibly going to stop their relationship. That's a pretty significant life event. And we, they had a wireless glucometer right on there. Boom, check it. Their blood sugar in the time of that conversation was at 24 millimolars per liter. Now for people listening, um, a really healthy fasting glucose or just even say like a normal day kind of glucose uh, between 5 to 5.5. You know, once you're kind of getting above 5.5 up into the 6s and the 7s, you know, your doctor might be talking to you about, hey, you know, you need to watch your sugar. You're kind of developing some diabetic symptomology here. So for this conversation, this person was having, they were up at 24 millimolars per liter. And all you could really deduce this down to is a stressed state. So like I said, it's a wild card. It definitely is experienced amongst everybody and do not underestimate its impact on a whole host of markers. And just to take it one step further to link like weight management, for example, well, Hey, your body's producing a lot of glucose and putting in your bloodstream, your body's not interested in fat metabolism and weight loss. So, you know, you're in a chronically stressed state, your body is not really in the mood to talk about fat loss at that point in time. So that's, again, getting back to until you deal with somebody's stress and how they can develop it, it can make all these changes and all these other things extremely difficult and more of an uphill battle. Yeah, absolutely, man. I mean, that's, that's such a significant number to, to hear. And I, you know, it's one, it's another one of these things. It's like, I knew that I didn't think it would be that high. I didn't think it would be that. I knew the principle and I didn't know the stuff about it, but I didn't think it would be that high. I and would it's, also, it's fascinating. I would also probably provide some context there where that's a pretty abnormal response to, and this is also an individual who definitely was type 2 diabetic at the point of the conversation uh, on that phone call. And uh, that has a huge impact on how your body can actually take glucose out of the blood. So if you're diabetic, those numbers are going to be much higher than compared to somebody who is a non-diabetic. It is a very extreme example, but it shows you really the impact that something like stress can have from a biochemical perspective. Right. But it still kind of paints that picture, like you were saying, where maybe this individual, part of the reason why they developed type 2 diabetes is because they're so stressed all the time. Or maybe that's not the only thing, but I mean, that's certainly a big piece of the puzzle as to why they are in the state of health that they're in. I call it, I call it kind of like fertilizer. If there's something going on underneath, it can really act as a catalyst or an amplifier to yeah. that under underlying mechanism that's already going on. Yeah. 
It's fascinating, man. I mean, it underlies everything. And, you know, there's that saying, you, you can't fix the stuff for, how does it go? So you can't fix the stuff that's in your body until you fix the shit that's going on in your head and in your heart. And, and, and I mean, like, that's super true. Yes. And, uh, definitely highlights, you know, the mindfulness based practices. I think anybody who really wants to try to help their stress levels, I highly recommend any kind of mindfulness. Uh, there's even courses called, uh, MBSR, uh, Mm -hmm. mindfulness based stress reduction. And, uh, what I find is if you, if you're living in the past, you can be depressed, you can be regretful. Um, and then if you're living too much in the future, I already mentioned you're typically anxious, uh, you're, you're typically worried. Now you have no agency over either of those. Uh, all you have is the, the present moment. And it, it is very easy to say this, but it's very difficult to practice. Uh, but mindfulness-based stress reduction courses do give you skills on how you can get back to present. And the whole goal is to really help that mental state and try to decrease your, your stress levels. Uh, it's been a lifesaver for me personally. I could say that for sure. There's a lot of uh, principles. You know, you get these sayings that stick in your head and you carry with them with you for your life. And I would say that's true definitely for me. Um, so anybody out there definitely recommend, you know, learn some mindfulness. Even Netflix has uh, that headspace guide mm-hmm. for sleep, you know, these things can go a long way. And I would say simple solutions are sometimes the most effective. I think that's Ackman's razor principles. Usually the simplest answers are the most correct. Uh, so, and kiss principle. I don't like the old to keep, keep it simple, stupid. I like, you know, keep it super simple. Yeah. Keep it super simple. And that usually gives you the best um, behavior changes as well. Yeah, for sure. It's so important. I mean, I personally would would rank all the mindfulness and you know fixing your your own brain. It's it's one A one B with your physical health, with your nutrition. It, it's all equally important. And um, I don't know if you remember him, Matt Arnone from he, he was one of my good buddies. So he does um, he's got a business called Mindframe now. And I should nice. connect you guys actually. And so I had him on the podcast, and he works with another uh, gentleman, James Gardner, who was with York uh, Athletic Therapy years ago, and they're doing a performance wellness uh, platform where it's all. Uh, marrying the mindfulness and the movement and tenfold movement in the workplace and with athletes and with all humans together. So I think I should connect to you guys actually, because it would be an interesting um, partnership with, with what you guys have got going on there. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. And I, I actually did see that uh, podcast with him. Uh, I do remember like in university, man, that guy was a beast, especially in the soccer context. Um, <laughs> and uh, it's very cool because I think that's where some of the industry may go actually uh, back in 2017 we're really lucky our uh, uh, one of the owners of the clinic had a really nice um, farm property up in Caledon and um, I would work uh, a Tuesday to Saturday schedule and kind of Tuesday to Friday was in the normal clinic doing the normal thing and then on Saturdays I had to work up at this uh, state farm property and pretty much a normal day other than we would teach a drop-in fitness class and it was back-to-back with mindfulness and we actually called it training the body and the mind and it was like an hour of fitness and an hour of mindfulness and uh, it was very nice too where uh, Dr. Knipping would attend my fitness class so we would do the fitness class together and then I would attend 
his mindfulness-based session after the fact. So that was a nice kind of tag team. And I really enjoyed that, but it, fitness can really help your mindfulness practice and why you have to look at the definition of mindfulness or mindful which is paying attention in the present moment non-judgmentally so just experiencing the present and your mind typically gets to gets bored and then wants to move on to the next thing so first developing awareness when it moves is, is a big indicator, but then the ability to pull it back and reshift your consciousness on the present. And the exercise I find very beneficial because it gives you like tactile things to focus on, to give that attention. So whether that be your heart still pounding, you know, your chest, you know, you have that glisten of sweat running down and you can feel it just moving. I've always found it to be you, you get so much more out of mindfulness practices when you follow it up post exercise. So uh, that's a fantastic thing. I would love to, if I ever have an opportunity to chat with them, it'd be fantastic. It's been got to be at least eight, 10 years since I've uh, spoken with him. So that would be fantastic. Yeah, for sure. I'll, I'll definitely make that connection, but I totally agree with you. And I mean, I think uh, that, that, that concept of uh, doing a mindfulness practice after physical activity is maybe a little bit more familiar to those of us who are in fitness or who were previously athletes, just because we are more in tune with our body or it's easier for me to feel my body than it is for me to feel my brain. And someone who is maybe not has, has no fitness experience, doesn't exercise, never played sports. They have no concept of their physical body either. So I think it's I think it's still a perfect segue and they're and they're perfectly married and related but I think that that's why people like us relate to that so much but yeah man it it is um it is a really interesting thing I think that you know it, it's so great like that all of us who were at that time we all did what we did at that time just young kids just trying to figure it out and we you know we're still young and trying to figure it out but we've kind of all reached these conclusions uh separately and it's it's just amazing to see and to reconnect in this way and and see where where we're all going to take all of this Absolutely. You know, I was, I was very excited to see when you kind of kick this off, you know, in addition to all your, your fitness and coaching practice. And then the podcast, I was like, Hey, you know, yours is definitely getting after it. I was very, very happy, especially after that last conversation uh, at Pickle Barrel. I was like, nice, you know, finding that groove, going with it, developing it. So thoroughly liked what I saw there. And then that's kind of what even inspired me to reach out and just say, Hey, you know, it's been, a, it's been a while, you know, let's connect. Had a great conversation last time. I'm sure we can do it again and look what came out. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's amazing. And, and I thank you again for that. I mean, that was one of many conversations that really helped shape uh, everything that's come and everything that will continue to come. And like you said, it's already been a great conversation. We've, we're, we're almost at two and a half hours now, which is, which is incredible, but uh, I don't want to take up too much more of your time. It, it is a long weekend. Uh, we'll definitely Certainly. do this again. I mean, we can, we can keep going for, for hours. And, and I know I said this now and, and to people listening, I, I've said this every single podcast so far with a guest. It's like, we could just keep going. And it's because like people are just so good. And we've, we're, you know, we're, we have so many things to talk about. There's so many, so much more to talk about. Um, but I think, uh, another conversation will, will do better, um, than anything else. So, so thank you so much for your time. Um, is there anything else that you kind of want to leave the people with in closing here? Uh, absolutely. I would, I would say, like I, I mentioned, um, definitely don't neglect the sleep, align yourself with a rhythm, 
and move your body. You know, it's that energy in food intake and energy out physical activity. And we have a lot of um, accessibility on the food and not, no, not necessarily on the output. So, you know, walking is some of the best medicine that you can do. And I would say just move your body, uh, sleep well, and try to eat whole foods. That's it. I love it, brother. I'm, I'm right with you there and, and couldn't have said it better myself. Um, I'll put everything in the show notes, but uh, let people know one more time where they can find you, where they can find the clinic and whatnot. So uh, I'm at Deerfields and that's uh, deerfieldsclinic.ca, uh, address 111, the West Mall in Etobicoke. Um, Instagram, I don't even know what my thing is. I haven't changed in so long. I think it's at anthony.barsby on uh, Instagram. And yeah, I always had a, had a fantastic time doing this and I look forward to doing it again. Amazing, man. We'll, uh, we'll be in touch. Thank you so much again. Anytime. Bye everybody. And there it is. We did it again. Another fantastic conversation where I am leaving the conversation feeling 100 times better than entering the conversation. And this is happening every time. And I hope it continues to happen and never stops happening. It's just so amazing to reconnect with people that, you know, I, kind of grew up with, I guess I didn't really grow up with Anthony, but we had a lot of time together uh, in fourth year and in university together where we learned a lot of things and we were much different people at that time. And, you know, we've gone our separate ways, reconnected. Anthony helped me out at a time where I really needed it. And we've kind of come to the same conclusions on a lot of these things on our own, but arrived at the same place. And, you know, the easiest way that I can equate that is like, you know, when you're in school and you have a math test, you compare your answers to your friends afterwards. And, you know, all five of you have all five different answers. Well, you know, only one of you can be right and the rest of you are wrong. But, you know, as I continue to connect with people that we arrive at all the same conclusions, it just continues to reinforce that what we're doing is correct. We're all on the same path and we're all kind of growing together. So it was an amazing conversation. I was really happy with it. We will do more in the future and probably try and get into more specifics on things as this was quite a broad, um, a broad episode, a broad, uh, a wide ranging conversation, I should say. And uh, we, we did get into the nitty gritty on some things, but we didn't go too deep. So if there are things that you'd like to specifically hear us speak about more and get into more detail, please let me know. I'm happy to go into that detail with Anthony or with any of the guests, really, with any of the episodes. But um, yeah, let me know your feedback. Always happy to hear it. I'll let you go now. I'll let you go now. I know that this was uh, the longest one yet, um, but I enjoyed it anyway. So reach out to Anthony. Uh, I'll close. I'll include all of the show notes, uh, all of the contact information. I can't even speak anymore. Uh, I'll include all the contact information for Anthony and Deerfields Clinic in the show notes as per usual, as well as myself at Daniel Yoris on Instagram and everywhere else. Um, that's it. Have a great day. Go outside, make sure you get your steps in, walk, drink water, take care of yourself, get a good sleep tonight. And that is it. If you've enjoyed any of the podcasts, please leave a review and a ratings on a rating on iTunes as it goes a really long way in helping the show grow. And I would really appreciate it. I am so thankful and grateful for your time and attention as always. Have an excellent day. We'll chat soon. Bye-bye.